0: The fourth watch starts now. You're listening to Omega Frequency with BDK on the Fourth Watch Radio
1: Network. Greetings, this is Phil Baker. And I'm BDK. This is the July edition of Ready with an Answer.
0: Today we're going to be answering listener questions on a wide variety of spiritual topics.
1: So thank you so much for joining us. The virtual mailbag opens right now.
0: welcome to episode 99 of omega frequency omega frequency is dedicated to encouraging and equipping the remnant bride of christ and proclaiming the return of yeshua the messiah as king of kings and lord of lords if this is your first time checking out the podcast then thank you so much for taking the time to download this week's episode i hope that it's going to be a blessing to you and if you're a returning listener then thank you so much for coming back and supporting us if you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to new episodes of the podcast when they air on Mondays. The easiest way to do it is by subscribing for absolutely free on iTunes, or you can listen on demand anytime you want by visiting our podcast archives over at OmegaFrequency.com. We're also blessed to be part of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. If you visit FourthWatchRadio.com, you're going to be able to check out a wide variety of episodes that cover paranormal and prophetic topics from a biblical worldview and perspective. Now, before I bring on Phil, I have a quick programming schedule update. Um, last week, I initially posted the upcoming shows for July in the wrong order. I did it on accident. I wasn't thinking properly. I did that on my Facebook page. So if you're like, hey, wait a minute, I thought this was going to be Bride Boot Camp this week. What the heck's going on? Uh, sorry, my bad on that. This week is Ready with an Answer. We usually try to do that the first week of the month. Uh, next week is going to be Bride Boot Camp Lesson 5. So tune in next week, you'll get Lesson 5. And then on the 24th, I have a very special bonus episode for everyone. My best friend in the whole entire world, who no one has ever met or heard from yet, is going to be joining me for that episode. He's the dude that came up with the idea for me to start podcasting. And he does so much behind the scenes, man, to make Omega Frequency a reality and to make it happen. So we're going to be sharing the origin story of how the podcast came to be. We'll reminisce a bit on some of the past episodes. We'll celebrate the upcoming episode 100. We'll talk about the future. We're also going to be answering a lot of the non-theological questions that I get asked in the old virtual mailbag. So questions will be answered, conspiracies will be addressed, and the mystery of who BDK is will be explained. And then on the 31st, it's officially episode 100, and I'm doing a special investigation on how today's religious landscape could give rise to the false prophet, and how he could become the leader of a one-world religion. How could he use that influence to anoint a counterfeit Christ as the returning Messiah? And will this Messiah bring a new age of enlightenment and peace, or will he be Earth's final pharaoh? Join me on the 31st and find out. Okay, so now that I got all the housekeeping in order, let's get Brother Phil on the line. Phil Baker, my friend, how you doing this evening?
1: I'm doing great. This is episode 99.
0: This is episode 99, man.
1: So it's the J.J. Watt episode, right?
0: Uh, He's
1: he's number 99. You Houston boys. All right. All right. (laughs) right. That's that's Sorry, man. I got the Houston fever, man. My Astros are in first place in the major leagues. Gosh, I'm just looking forward to everything Houston right now.
0: Well, just remember before he was your Houston boy, he was my Wisconsin Badger, so There you go. So, you know, I guess we can share him. I guess we can give that. Give that up a little <laughs> bit for Mr. JJ Watt. All, All right, right. man. <laughs> I know you're super busy tonight. Um so I really appreciate you burning the midnight oil with me this evening. Um, you're in the middle of getting ready for a hellacious move. Um, how you holding up, man?
1: Doing great. Boxes piled up to the ceiling. It's great.
0: Awesome, man. Before we kick off the show, where can people find you on the web? How can they check out your blog and book?
1: Yeah, so, uh, my website is PhilSBaker.com and the, uh, the blog is ReclaimingTheFaith.blogspot.com. And I generally post there on Mondays about a wide variety of comments, just kind of a look at what the early Christians would say about some of the socio political, uh, matters of our world. How would an early Christian react to those kind of things? And, um, yeah, you can find my book, New. Wine Skins and the Simple Words of Christ on Amazon and uh, other places online.
0: Awesome, man. And you had a really awesome blog this week um, about the September 23rd uh, signs in the heavens and imminence was the heart of your blog. Highly recommend people go back and check that out. Um, So... Let's do this, man. In these Ready With an Answer episodes, Phil and I are going to take turns answering questions that the listeners asked either via my Facebook page, Messenger, or the website. One of us will go first for the first question, and then there will be time for whoever didn't get to go first to add any insights onto the answer that they might have or possibly even have a different take on the answer. Then we'll take turns going first until we run out of questions, and because Phil went first last time, I get to go first this time we got a bunch of questions to answer, so let's not waste any more time with the pre-show hype here. Our first <laughs> question is this. Hello, I'm a new listener to the Omega Frequency as well as 4th Watch Ministries. My question is, have you seen the movie Split and seen how M. Night had used a lot of the Genesis 6 as well as much of the content you and Justin cover in your podcasts? Lastly, my wife and I are believers. However, growing up in the church has seemed to only shield our insight into things to come. That and if anything concerning supernatural aspects of the Bible is brought up or talked about, it is quickly poo-pooed or dismissed as untruth. This pains my heart. As I, coming from a broken past, have an amazing story, and it cannot be shared as a spiritual story only as the love of Jesus has saved me. Which is true, however, there's so much more that can be shared. However, if the spiritual slash supernatural aspects have to be toned way, way down, how do you get across truth to the sleepers of the contemporary church, and what do you suggest? Thank you, and God bless. P.S., I'd love to hear your take on the movie, on one of your or Justin's podcasts, as I think is relevant to the times we live in, and the content today. God bless. Well, first of all, thank you for checking out the podcast, being a new listener. Uh, thank you for taking the time to write in with a question. I am familiar with some of M. Night Shyamalan's movies. I have not seen Split. I think the last movie that I saw was The Village. The oh, way I take that back, I think it was Devil. But that was kind of like his story, and then I think someone else directed it. So like M. Night Shyamalan, in case you're not familiar with him, he's a supernatural Alfred Hitchcock sort of movie maker. I don't know if he's Christian. He probably isn't. He probably has a lot of different spiritual streams running through his mind. Um, But some of his stuff is pretty blatantly Christian, so maybe he was influenced by it. Um, There's definitely a lot of spiritual themes behind some of his stuff, so it wouldn't surprise me if Split had some Genesis 6 stuff in it. Um, I think Signs with Mel Gibson was my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie. Um, that totally had spiritual stuff in it. Um, and I would even go so far as to say it's one of my favorite Christian-themed movies of all time, even though people might not get that. But it's basically about how Mel Gibson was once a pastor. He loses his faith. And then he finds it again after a demonic alien attack. So there's definitely Genesis six stuff running through there. Um, But I would use caution because not everything M night does is Christian or age appropriate for youngsters. Um, But you're kind of asking me mainly, how do you share supernatural truths with people who are asleep or not used to hearing them? And, I would say that this world is kind of a supernatural act of God, right? If creation itself, life itself, testifies to the supernatural nature of God, um, there are many different opportunities to incorporate a supernatural worldview into any conversation. One way you can do it is by using life circumstances or stories to do it. Jesus did this all the time, right? He used parables. He took heavenly supernatural stories and wrapped them in earthly stories, and then he used those stories to lead people into deeper spiritual conversations. And I'll give you a good example here that's very germane to this conversation, right? I remember when the movie Signs came out back in the early 2000s, um, someone, and this made national news, someone was watching it in a movie theater got scared, had a heart attack, and the movie was billed as the movie that was so scary it almost killed someone. So there was like a super amount of buzz about it. And at the time, I was an assistant pastor at a church, but I was also working a normal job, and there were a lot of people discussing the movie, so I used that movie to ask questions like, what do you guys think about the aliens? Do you think aliens could exist? What do you think aliens are? And then when people were like, why is a pastor asking these kind of questions about aliens? Like, I shared with them that the Bible does speak about a demonic deception and about extraterrestrial life. And some of these fringier topics that most people wouldn't necessarily think that the Bible does relevantly speak to. And that these demonic entities in this movie are scary and they're nothing to be messed with and they do desire to hurt people. And then I'm like, isn't it amazing how this bad experience in the pastor's life in the movie caused him to lose faith and think there was no God? But then the experience that he had that that caused him to lose his faith was actually set up by God and used providentially and supernaturally to prepare and protect the pastor's family. And then the pastor refound his faith in God at the end of it. And so like I used something very germane, very natural to broach a spiritual subject. So that's one way you can do it. Sometimes people who are opposed to supernatural truth just need to see that it's not all weird stuff, that even the natural things have supernatural purposes behind them. But more than that, I think the best way to, quote unquote, get across supernatural truth to the sleepers of the contemporary church, as you put it, is to become the truth yourself. We can walk in the Spirit. We can devote ourselves to the study and practice of God's Word. We can develop a life of prayer, devotion, fasting, hunger after God. It's like one thing to know that supernatural truth exists and that it's real, and then there's a whole other side to it. It's a whole other thing to possess and walk in that reality and in that truth yourself, to become the truth that you believe in. It's always been my experience that when I'm ministering to someone or praying for someone or just talking to someone and the conversation somehow turns to God and God's Spirit shows up and grips the conversation and He begins to move, people know it. I don't have to convince people that something spiritual or supernatural is happening. And that is actually the way it should be when we are giving the Holy Spirit an open door to minister, to move through our life. We can be filled with the Spirit. We can walk in the Spirit. We can be witnesses and ambassadors for Jesus. There are Christians who take this very seriously, who pursue God daily, who every morning wake up and seek Him and stir up those gifts of fresh, fan that fire before they go out into the world. They go out into that world prayed up, filled up, and whatever situation they come across, whatever Situation they find themselves in, they stick out like a sore thumb because they're Jesus people. In every church and hopefully in every workplace, there are those people who are just lit up for Jesus. These are the people who are passionate and possess an authentic faith. These are the type of people who are, you you know, like if you're in church, you know who these people are. These are the people you go up to and like, hey, brother, hey, sister, would you pray for me? I'm struggling. These people stand out. They're marked. They have been with Jesus. And we can all be that way. We can all be bearers of supernatural truth. We can live out a supernatural lifestyle for people. We can be the remnant if we want to. But it's all about making time and the commitment to do so. Brother Phil, what do you think about this uh, M. Night Shyamalan cat? Um, Have you seen the movie? Or how would you get across supernatural truth to a world that's sleeping on it or a church that's sleeping on it
1: yeah um i think the only m night uh, movies that i've seen are signs and like you said the village that reminded me I've, i've seen that movie um and they were they were really well done um yeah but like getting across um truth to sleepers of the contemporary church i think everything you said is really good it's really on point um, it's, it's going to be tough, but you know, with, with stuff concerning like in terms of spiritual truth, maybe like dark spiritual truths, like about like the demonic stuff that's going on, uh, maybe something you could do is if you, if you have like the movie detestable, that documentary detestable by, uh, is it Thomas Dunn? Um, you could say, you know, would you mind well, we can watch this this stuff together. This is talking about, you know, some pretty dark, satanic stuff, but also about deliverance. Let's watch this together and maybe we can talk about it afterward. Is that cool? And sit down and let them watch it and then, like, discuss it um, afterward. Or you can maybe ask them if you can watch some um, lectures by uh, Russ Dizdar at, at different conferences. And you can find those things online at YouTube. And sit down and, you know, they don't have to necessarily agree with everything and you don't have to, you know, be really defensive about it. But just say, let's watch it. And afterward, talk about it and just, you know, don't feel like you have to defend everything. But like somebody with all of Russ's experience, it's just really difficult to argue that stuff because he worked with the police force there in like Chicago. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. And so it's like. It's really difficult to for for anybody that I don't know that's thinking logically, thinking critically, and rationally to really argue with Russ's stories. So if if you're so you don't need to feel the need to be defensive, just invite him over, you know, one Friday night or some Saturday night, and let's just let's watch this together, you know, and discuss it. That'd be something I'd I'd encourage. Or if they're maybe younger um, and they're into like short videos stuff, have them check out the uh, SGT report. Um, I that that channel is really good. It's covering a lot of um, like PedoGate and some of the crazy stuff that's going on there. And the more people get exposed to this kind of stuff, the more you start realizing that. There's some really dark, dark forces in the world, but at the same time, well, how, how do we fight those dark forces? Well, the Bible has answers for that. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are powerful, right? They're divinely powerful to demolish demonic strongholds. And so you like, you, you can turn it into a Bible study and you can see how Paul had like, power encounters in the book of acts and peter had power encounters in the book of acts and jesus had power encounters all through the gospels you know with the power of the holy spirit confronting the the works of the devil and so there i mean there are different ways that you can do that and another thing that i encourage you to do is be prayerful um for these people that that you're referring to that um maybe are sleeping in the contemporary church, be praying for opportunities to, for, for God to reveal um, the power of the gospel to them and be willing, too, to step up and risk looking dumb if you do pray for them to their face, like, like they get hurt or something like that. And be willing to step up and pray for their immediate healing. You know, like right there on the spot, or something like that, and that's going to take a lot of faith and it's going to take a lot of courage. But be willing to step out because something just amazing might happen right in front of them, to them that they can't they can't deny. You know, they just can't deny the supernatural power of God happened to them. You know, they can they can try to rationalize different things about it. Um, you know that maybe it only happens in certain times but they they will have like a pebble in their shoe if you've ever been running out on a track or something you get a pebble in your shoe that just keeps on you keep on stepping on every time you take a, a step like and it's just like this constant reminder that's there they'll have that story in the back of their heads that is good from the holy spirit just letting them know hey you need to think about this stuff so i don't know that's just some stuff I would I would encourage in addition to everything that you said.
0: Amen. That's good, bro. That's really good. All right. Next question. We got um, this one says, hey, BDK and Phil, we love listening to your podcast weekly. We live in Australia. Shout out to Australia. We find the only church online is with people like you. Thank you so much. We have family and friends around us that don't. Understand the times we live in or the Bible and that it's real and that it has meaning. They don't understand as they can't see or hear. What do you say to a young, sensitive man who is 21 years old who says he is open minded but has to turn from God because of the things that happened in his life? Where do you start? How do you get them to know that God loves him and to seek salvation? Our prayers are with you all as you help. People to hear and see blessings. Well, blessings, grace, and peace to you in Australia. Thank you for writing in. Brother Phil, what's a good starting point if we want to share with people about the love of God, but those people have bad experiences or hurtful experiences in their life, and they just can't see that God loves them because of all the pain, man?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, for the questioner, y'all need to start with what you just Talked about, like y'all said, blessings and, you know, we're praying for y'all. Well, that, that's where you start. You have to start with prayer. You gotta, you gotta be like intentionally, uh, and persevering and praying for this young man. And why why is that? Well, like, you know, Second Corinthians 4 4 says that the God of this world, little G, God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Alright, so you got this like active evil force that is actually like blinding people, um, keeping them from being able to see how good God is how good the gospel is, how necessary the gospel is for their lives. It's, it's this blinding and it's, it's for real. Um It's an active force that you can't fight in natural means. Like you can say a lot of, you can say a lot of true words to that person and that's good. Those are good things. Like we'd say they're planting seeds in one sense. That's putting a, a pebble in their shoe and that's good. But really, you got a supernatural battle to fight. And so you need supernatural weaponry. And part of that is prayer. Like you need to engage God to fight the devil <laughs> who's blinding their minds. Uh, and so you need to be praying for them, praying that God would open their eyes. And really, you know, that's that's exactly what God sa- or what Paul rather says to uh to, um, King Agrippa, when he's witnessing, when he's witnessing to him, uh, he's been sharing his, you know, he, he's on his way to Rome after he's been arrested in Jerusalem. He's on his way to Rome because he's appealed to Caesar, you know. I appeal to Caesar because I'm a Roman citizen. And so on his way there, he gets to talk to like Festus, and now he's talking to Agrippa, these different rulers. And he's sharing his testimony. He's talking about what Jesus said to him, what Paul's saying, what Jesus said to him. This is in Acts 26, verse 17 and 18. And he's quoting Jesus. He said, Jesus said to me, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power, the dominion of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. In an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, and so like these you know these people, the unbelievers, their eyes are blinded, their hearts are blinded to the glory of Christ, and they're in the dominion, the power of Satan, the clutch of Satan, and so they need to be taken out and so like um because their their eyes have been blinded to the goodness and the glory of God, one thing we don't need to be quick to pray for them for is worldly blessings and a lot of times you know we think like if people would just like maybe we have unbelieving friends that are going through a really difficult time and we're just praying for God to bless them right to bless them with worldly blessings just to help them get back on their feet again but really a lot of times worldly blessings often keep us in this blinded state they keep us from really coming to an, an, a place of dependence on God. They keep us from being broken. Uh, so think about the, the uh, prodigal son in Luke 15, right? So as long as he had worldly blessings, was he, was he repentant? <laughs> you know, uh, not at all, right? As long as he had worldly blessings, he didn't give two rips about anything but himself or anyone but himself. When did he come to his senses? It wasn't when he was living large. It wasn't when he was abounding in worldly blessings. It took a famine. It took bankruptcy. It took the loss of his friends. It took the loss of his dignity. And only then was he in a position to come to his senses. Only then was he in a position to wake up. Only then was he in a position to seek salvation. So, I'd encourage you to pray for this person and pray for God to do whatever it takes to bring him to his knees in humility. And as you're doing it, the second thing I'd encourage you to do is share the gospel like, you know, Paul did. You know, Paul was preaching to Agrippa. You need to do that because Romans 10 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him if they've not believed? How will they believe in him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they've sent? You know, a lot of times, you know, people quote. um, I think it's Thomas Aquinas. I can't remember. No, it's not Thomas Aquinas. I can't remember who it is, but they say uh, it's it's like preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. Right. St. Francis Francis of Assisi. There it is, man. Thank you. I hate that phrase. I hate it. I hate it with a passion. Right. Because it's like. It's so against what Paul would say. Mm. (laughs) It's so against what Paul actually did say in Romans 10. He's like, you can't preach the gospel without preaching the gospel. They can't hear the gospel unless we open our mouths. They can see the gospel, and that's really important. But what if Jesus never said, repent and believe the gospel? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like. That's the first thing that comes out of his mouth in the the gospel of Mark. Before he heals anyone in the gospel of Mark, before he does any good works, he comes on the scene and says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the good news. That's the first thing he does. So, like, we need to share the gospel and we need to pray and we need to personally – the third thing I'd encourage is to personally pray for – or to pray for our own words of knowledge and wisdom, uh, words of knowledge, words of wisdom to share with these people when we do speak as we're speaking. Um, like you think about John 4 when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well. God gives him like words of knowledge that he speaks to her, like words about her that there's no way that Jesus could have known apart from the Holy Spirit, giving it to Jesus. How do we know that? Because what's the woman's testimony that she shares with all the people in Samaria? Well, she goes, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. You know, that's what blows her away about Jesus is that he's like, he's reading her mail. He's like, yeah, you don't just have one husband. You have five husbands and the guy you're sleeping with now is not your husband. And let me tell you some more stuff, you know, like he, he, and, and that's like implied by her testimony. So like he's not condemning her, but he's just saying, look, you're, you're out of line with God's will for your life and God's trying to bring you back in line with God's will for your life. So he's not shaming her, but he's saying, look, this is the truth. The stuff that you're trying to hide, it's not hidden. There are no secrets with God. But that was a special blessing from, from God, only, only God could have known that about that woman. There's no way Jesus could. That's a word of knowledge. Um, so pray for that kind of stuff. And fourth, I, I encourage you to seek to live every moment. You personally, as you're around this person, but not just as you're around this person, seek to live every moment as being set apart unto God. Um, so it's like 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from f- fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the very thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may instead, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, this. this young man may have been hurt by Christians in the past, so you do need to... Make sure you are living as set apart to God, living for God's pleasure and not your pleasure. And as you're doing that, as you're being faithful, that gives a lot of that does give a lot of weight to your words that you're saying. You, put, you do need to be saying the words. You do need to be preaching the gospel. You need to be doing that and you need your life to align with those words. But don't shrink back from preaching just because You know, you feel like you haven't lived a totally holy life. No, just keep preaching and get your life in line, too. You know, let them come together today. Repent, believe the gospel, you yourself. Come in line and now, you know, start praying actively for this man and doing all those things we just talked about.
0: Amen. I had kind of very similar thoughts. My passage was going to be, um, you don't enter a person's house unless you bind that strong man first. And then when that Mm. strong man is bound then you can steal or you can take from the kingdom of darkness and bring it into the kingdom of light. Leonard Ravenhill actually put it a different way. He said that uh, where words fail, where words cause nothing but hardness of heart, unction is like dynamite. Basically, he's talking about prayer. So the first thing we really need to do, like Phil said, is we need to wage war on behalf of that person. We need to pray against the God of this age who is blinded, their eyes. These hurts, these things that have caused trouble in his life have left uh, scars. Sometimes those scars even open up resentment, which is kind of like a magnet to demonic forces. So unforgiveness is a magnet towards demonic oppression. So we need to pray that God would open their eyes. We need to pray that their defenses come down. We need to pray that the Holy Ghost would anoint our words. And then we need to preach Jesus to them. And the other thing that we can do besides that is, and this is really cool, because the Bible is tailor-made for people like this. The Bible is not some sort of like pie-in-the-sky storybook, right? Like, all the literature of the Bible's times was just this romanticized biography. So, like, if you're reading about Alexander the Great, it's Alexander the Great was a god, man. He was a king. No one could beat him. He would just cut knots and all these other crazy stories. And no one ever talked about, like, the pains and the struggles and the turmoils that he went through. But the Bible is so unique in that it's mostly stories of people who have gone through just horrible situations or insane trials and temptations or have been slaves or been thrown in dungeons or in fiery furnaces or fed the lions like Jesus. He, he was so perfect. He was born in a stable next to donkeys. He never sinned. He never did anything bad to anyone. And yet they crucified him naked on a cross Like these stories are all realistic stories of people that have gone through bad situations, but then at the end, it's not always sunshine and rainbows, but God always works all things good to those who he has called according to the purpose. And sometimes sorrow only lasts an evening, but joy comes in the morning, right? So we can take them through stories like Jesus used parables too, And we can show them honestly that this is nothing new. People struggled all the time in the Bible. And even though everything didn't always turn out like the best case scenario that we would view it as, everything always turned out to further the grand scheme of purpose of destiny. And it ultimately culminated in the one who laid down his life for all humanity, Jesus Christ. And then when you find Jesus, you find everything. Because Jesus came to redeem. That's what I love the best about the Bible. It is the world's biggest story of redemption. Unworthy people who were enemies of God, who did bad things to other people and who had bad things done to them. Living in a world that's been broken by the sin of cursed. Christ came to redeem and rescue and he offers salvation. Not like a get-me-out-of-jail-free card, or not all the material blessings that Phil was talking about, but salvation. He offers him himself and the power of the Holy Ghost to anyone who would accept the terms of surrender. So take them through stories too, man. Show them, you know, like their place in the story. A lot of times when we hear stories, when we read stories, when we hear These stories of other people, we find ourselves walking in their shoes. Good fiction does that. Good stories do that. Use that to your benefit. That would be the only thing I could really add to Phil's excellent advice, man. All right, so let's uh, move to the next question. Hi, can you give some insight on communion, please? I have stopped going up for the Eucharist at my Lutheran church. I attend from time to time. My wife attends regularly But there's some things that bother me in the church. For one, there's a big wooden statue of Jesus front and center hanging on the wall. And then cut straight to the point, I think it's wrong. There are the whole lukewarm service thing going on in the Eucharist for communion bothers me the most. They believe that it is the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. It does not feel right. And I get a different thing from the Bible. My Catholic Orthodox friends went on to tell me how Jesus is continually being resacrificed for us over and over again. That made me raise an eyebrow, and we had a discussion where I defended my opposition to it, but didn't make any headway. How are we as Christians supposed to honor Jesus in communion, as we are told to do, and why should we have no part in the Eucharist? So many people I know have trouble with this one. One minute I think I have it, and the next minute I'm lost again. Your insight is much appreciated and valued. Thank you for your time and your continued guidance. So this is a good question. And I don't know what Lutheran synod you're a part of or which branch of the Lutheran denomination you're a part of. So I don't know. Like they each have their own kind of spin on what communion means. And I've even heard that some Lutheran churches do call it Eucharist. So I don't know exactly which one yours holds to, Um I knew the Lutheran Synod that I grew up in and that I was confirmed in, that my dad was a pastor in, didn't believe in transubstantiation. Uh, We believed in something called the real presence. So the Eucharist or the Catholic transubstantiation, let's get into that and let's try to distinctualize what the Lord's Supper really is. So... Transubstantiation basically teaches that during the Mass, the priest is basically performing a funeral rite or a funeral service. That's what the whole Mass used to be in Latin. It used to be a whole show. It used to be a funeral Mass. And basically the priest was re-sacrificing Christ by turning the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Christ and that when you take the elements you are actually putting Christ inside of you so they're re-sacrificing Christ each and every day because most catholic churches you still at least have mass every single day this would be unbiblical first peter 3:18 says for Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the spirit and if we read hebrews chapter 10 we find the following being said, In burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now where where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So we see clearly that when Christ died and rose from the dead, he established a second Eternal covenant. This was a one-time event, and let me just once again paraphrase this by using language found in these two passages. Christ hath suffered once for sins. We are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. He offered one sacrifice for sin forever, then sat down at the right hand of God. There is no more offering for sin. A priest does not re-offer Jesus' sacrifice By taking communion tomorrow and the day after and the day after, it is not part of a saving process. And communion is not a means of grace. That's basically what my Lutheran Synod taught. They didn't teach that the the bread and the wine became the actual body and blood, but they taught that it mystically contained the quote-unquote, and this is their words, real presence of the body and the blood and that it was part of the process of grace and salvation. And if you took it in a quote-unquote worthy manner, Christ was actually imparting grace and forgiveness to you in that moment that you took it. So it's almost like your car, you run on gas, the gas or salvation, it is a free gift, but you need to continually fill your tank every Sunday, otherwise your car won't run communion is that means of grace in the synod that I was brought up in. So that's kind of how we looked at it. That was kind of the analogy that we got. So that, and that might even be a little bit oversimplification, but basically they believe that because Jesus, when he was celebrating the Passover meal, took the elements and said, this is my body, this is my blood. The elements contained the real presence of the body and the blood, matter of fact, I remember my dad debating somebody on this. He was debating a Baptist minister, and the Baptist minister was trying to say it was symbolic, and my dad just kept re-saying the sentence over again. This is my body. This is my blood. And that's all my dad would say. And he was just like, if Jesus didn't mean that, he wouldn't have said it. So, but is that the truth? Is that the context of what's happening? Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal when he said it. That's the first clue. The Passover meal was a yearly remembrance meal that remembered and proclaimed how the Lord delivered and protected the children of Israel from Egypt the night the death angel came for the firstborn. If they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house, the death angel would pass over. And because of that, the final plague on the the Egyptians, um, they were saved from it by the blood, the Pharaoh let them go. Now what delivered them that night? Was it the meal? No, it was the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Now, after this, God told them every year, you're going to repeat this meal minus one thing. There's one thing you're not going to need to do anymore. You're not going to need to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost when you separate this meal. Why didn't they need to do that? Why didn't they need to reapply the blood? Why? Because the death angel wasn't coming back. It passed over once physically at one historical moment not every single Passover. The Passover meal was to be a symbolic reminder. It was to be a celebration. It was to be a touchstone to a time in the past where every generation would remember that it was God who saved them from Pharaoh. They would not only eat to connect themselves to the story, but then they would tell the story so that each and every generation would remember it. Now, fast forward or I guess fast, or rewind backwards, probably, because we're going backwards in history, but yet forward from the Passover. Jesus and the disciples are celebrating the Passover meal, and Jesus is saying this whole feast is actually a shadow of things to come. God truly delivered you from Pharaoh and the death angel, but remember what John said about me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm about to deliver you from Satan, not Pharaoh. I'm about to deliver you from death, not the death angel. I'm about to deliver you from Actual death this spe- this feast that you celebrate each and every year it spoke of me, its fulfillment is in me, this is my body, this is my blood. from now on, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me a, a remembrance about what I am about ready to do on the cross, and then after that remembrance of what I did on the cross. Paul would go on later to say it this way in first corinthians eleven 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, just like the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorpost only once and the death angel passed over only once, Christ died only once. He applied the blood on the mercy seat of heaven only once. He defeated Satan in death once and for all it happened in one moment of time. And in that moment of time, man, all of time will hang on that moment. And when we take communion, we celebrate that moment. We remember that moment. We proclaim the death of Jesus. We proclaim the coming of Jesus. We proclaim the victory of that moment. We don't make that moment happen over and over and over again. We don't need to resalvation salvation ourselves. We praise God that he settled the issue 2,000 years ago, and we give thanks, we give praise, we celebrate that Jesus saved us. We recommit ourselves to serve God, and most importantly, in this act of communion, because you're taking it with your brothers and your sisters, you are pledging to serve them also. So that's kind of how I understand true biblical communion, Brother Phil um Am I missing something? What did the early church think about it? What can you add to that, man?
1: So uh, so I grew up in a Southern Baptist uh, church, and it was like hardcore. Um, the communion Lord's Supper is only like – it's only a symbol kind of thing, um, and we – we maybe did it maybe did it four times a year um i remember there was a church i was at at one point they just they just plumb forgot to do it one year <laughs> <laughs> like, like it just it just slipped their minds oh, and i i just talked to the pastor i was like do you realize that we didn't do it at all this year <laughs> it's like oh okay so then we were on like a once a quarter system the next year and that was that was better um so like i'm gonna be straight up honest i'm not totally sure where i stand and the reason is um what the early christians say is very different than what i grew up believing and it's not in line with what catholics believe but it's not in line with what i grew up believing and honestly, BDK, from what you were describing, uh, with like the type of Lutheran tradition that you you grew up with, it's probably a lot more close to that, like a consubstantiation kind of feel, like which is like with, like the real presence with.
0: It's with, within, and under. I believe is the Catechism term.
1: Yeah. So I, they wouldn't they wouldn't use those words right? That's more of like a systematic theology kind of way of phrasing it. The early Christians were a lot more simplistic than that, but that's kind of the idea that you get from it. They would definitely not go with like the crucifying Jesus over and over again. You don't really get them. You don't really get them talking about it. Like you're getting forgiveness when you, um, take, uh, the wine, um, and the uh and the bread um and just as a side note they didn't do straight up wine either they didn't do grape juice but they didn't do uh wine they would always do wine mixed with water and not like it wasn't like because that's the way they drank their wine no like it was intentional like half wine half water because of what came out of Jesus when he was pierced with the spear that that's for real. That's why they did their communion wine that way, which is interesting. And that kind of comes back to like what they believed flowed out of Jesus was he would say like, uh, like he is the way, the truth and the life. Okay. And so, They really, they viewed communion as being more than just a memorial. It was something powerful. It was, you're taking in more of Jesus in a sense. If you're doing it in a holy manner, kind of like you were saying, man, I mean, this is what they believe. Like you're, you're taking more of Jesus's life into your life. Now, we don't, you don't have to believe that right? They could be wrong about that, but I'm I'm just telling you that's what they believe. I'll give you three quotes, okay? Three short quotes. This is all from the second century. This is like when Christianity is at its peak, in a sense, like its spiritual peak in, in, in many regards. Uh, so you got Ignatius. Ignatius is so highly thought of. He was the Bishop of Antioch. Him and Polycarp are like super close bros you know um and so here here's ignatius he writes in 105 i desire the bread of god the heavenly bread the bread of life which is the flesh of christ the son of god and i desire the drink of god namely his blood which is incorruptible love and eternal life okay That was just a really small part in a a letter that he wrote. It's not like he was speaking, like doing an essay on, you know, the Lord's Supper. It was just like a little part that he had in there. So here's Justin Martyr in 160. Now he's talking a a little bit more about the Lord's Supper in this this quote. So he goes, look, guys, we do not – and this is an apologetic work. He goes, we do not drink these – uh, as common bread and common drink. Um, so he's saying, like, the Lord's Supper, it's not regular stuff, guys. He goes, rather, Jesus Christ, our Savior, having been made in the flesh, sorry, having been made flesh by the Word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So, likewise, we have been taught that the Word, and, sorry, that the Word from which Our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished, is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. So, again, like he's saying, like this is not common stuff that we're taking in. We actually get infused with life by Jesus's life in this uncommon, you know, like this special bread and and drink special bread and wine and last one I'll give you is Irenaeus again like super super reputable bishop of Lyon um nothing bad is said about Irenaeus and he is one of the biggest apologetic guys that you see in the 2nd century this guy took on gnosticism like just about no one else back then but he writes, the bread, which is produced from the earth, when it receives the invocation of God or from God, it's like when we pray over the bread, it's no longer the common bread, but rather the Eucharist consisting of two realities, earthly and heavenly. So our bodies, when they receive the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, having the hope of the resurrection to eternity. Now, we have to understand when when Irenaeus uses the word Eucharist twice there, which was a common word for the early Christians, they had no concept of like a pope or transubstantiation or any of the stuff that we see in the modern day Catholic Church or even the ancient Catholic Church that was foreign to the early Christians because that's that governmental, you know, structure, all of that stuff was totally, you know, it, it did not exist. When he's using the word Eucharist, it was like a nickname for the Lord's Supper, because the Eucharist means Thanksgiving. That's all Eucharist means in the Greek. It's it's a Greek word that's used, I don't know, maybe 10 times in the New Testament, Eucharistia. Um, and uh, so like, He's talking about when we do the invocation, which would be like a blessing over the food, when we're giving thanks for the bread and wine. So he's like, when we do the Eucharistia, it turns into the Eucharistia. That's what he's saying. But he's not saying it turns into Jesus' blood. He's saying it turns into special bread and wine in that Jesus is present in one sense, like his life is present there. So it's something more than just a memorial to the early Christians. It was something very powerful. And maybe one of the reasons that you see them saying like this this wine is now special wine is that Jesus's life is now with the wine. And maybe that goes back to like Leviticus 17 where, you know, we're told life is in the blood, you know. Well, here's, we're taking in the blood again of Jesus in in one sense, like in a ceremonial sense, but his real presence is there. That's kind of what they believed. That's what they believed. Like the only blood we're supposed to take in is the blood of Jesus. You know, they were full on with the Acts 15 stuff. We're not supposed to drink any kind of blood, not even the blood of animals. But we are supposed to take in the blood of Christ, not that he's getting sacrificed once, you know, or sacrificed over and over. It's just that he's like with with us in a sense. And that's really weird. It's a weird thing to talk about, just like the Trinity gets a becomes sometimes a weird thing to talk about because it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. And you don't have to you don't have to accept it. And I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around it. And I'm not sure what I think. But that's what they believed.
0: Well, it's not really weird if you consider the fact that in the Garden of Eden, there was fruit that could give you eternal life that had supernatural capabilities to it or could damn you. Right. In, in the book of Revelation, it's not really weird when there's the tree of life again, and that and its leaves are for the healing of the nations, and you eat the fruit, and there's some sort of life imparted to it. Like, I'm not against the fact that grapes, right, You know, God couldn't infuse them with supernatural power. I mean, that's within his realm of possibility. I think the answer kind of lies somewhere in the middle of all of this, because, like, the one thing I always did appreciate, and this is kind of, like, different from what our listener experiences in the Lutheran Church, he finds it a very dead service during communion time. That's one of the things that I used to love about the Lutheran Church, actually, was the communion service. So I mean I used to love the fact that the that the the confirmed members of the church would gather around the table so to speak and that they would share a common cup like it wasn't like individual cups it was a common cup it was common bread so yep it it was a very reverential treatment of God and I think that is missing definitely from communion the other thing that I would just say is this man like The early church, totally like Phil is saying, didn't believe in transubstantiation. They didn't believe that a priest could call down Jesus and resacrifice them. The Romans did that. The Roman Catholics did that as a measure of control, right? They did it because, like, we're going to put this mass in Latin, so you had to come, and we're going to give you Jesus, but if you don't play a game, if you don't play a ball, we're going to excommunicate you, and you can't have Jesus inside of you, and then you're out of the church, and you'll go to hell. And so instead of it being a common cup or a common celebration or a common shared experience, it became a measure of control. But in a certain sense, if we truly, truly, truly believe our Bible, isn't Jesus's real presence there throughout the whole entire church service if two or three are gathered together in his name?
1: Yeah, that's what he says, right?
0: I mean, do we believe that, though? Right. I mean, it's one thing to say it, it's one thing to quote it, it's one thing to say it while you're praying, but do you really believe it? So, you know, if someone wants to get that nitpicky about communion and say, well, Jesus' real presence is there when you take communion, well, if two or three are gathered in my name, his presence is going to be there. So I think that we really need to draw the line on the transubstantiation I don't technically go for the full, like, like I don't have a problem with there being the presence of Christ. I have a problem with it being a means of grace. So I guess that's where I draw my line. Um, I don't believe it's a means of grace. I believe that that issue was settled 2,000 years ago. But we press into it, right? And that can be a way of doing it. We We press in when we pray. We press in when we do everything that God tells us to do, and one of the things he tells us to do is communion. So, you know, it's, it's just enforcing that rule of God in our life. So there we go. That was an interesting discussion more than I thought it was going to be. That's awesome. See, is this our first disagreement, Phil?
1: I don't think, I don't know if it's a disagreement. Maybe it is. I mean, I'm just, I just feel like obligated to share. i not, I'm not saying that they're right, but if this is what they're saying, like, I'm going to, Go ahead. I mean, it's like my my niche, you know, <laughs> so I'm going to like share it. And if people don't like it, that's fine. Or they don't disagree. Or they disagree. That's cool. You know, with because you're not technically disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing but, with them.
0: <laughs> I get the spirit of what they're saying. Like, there's nothing that they said that I'd be like, oh, no, I don't believe that. But like, I think that we can be sometimes a little hyper literal on some of this. And I don't know, man. It, it's weird, dude. It's weird. I am with you, though. We definitely need to reverence it. And we definitely need to believe that Christ's real presence is with us every day through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, I don't know if it was a disagreement. Darn it. We got to have one one time, dude.
1: We can call it a disagreement if you'd like.
0: Oh, a theological throwdown once. Just once. No. Okay. <laughs> hey, it could happen. We're going to be talking about some crazy stuff here tonight, people. So strap in. Um, <laughs> Oh, let's see where we're at now. Um, oh, here we go. Hi, guys. My question is about idolatry. Do you find wearing a cross is some kind of idolatry? Should we have crucifixes representing Christianity on our cars, houses, and bodies? Is it worshiping an object? I'm asking these questions since I'm Greek Orthodox. I love the fact that – I'm just going to pause here. I love the fact that we get people from all around the world – Writing in like it's not just Pentecostals, it's not just Baptists, it's not just charismatics, it's it's Lutherans, it's Catholics, it's Greek Orthodox people listen to the show, it's singers of death metal bands, it's it's all just a wide gamut, dude. That's really neat, dude.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: It is. It it, it really is, dude. It really is, man. Okay, okay, back to the thing. I'm asking these questions since I'm Greek Orthodox. And all I see when I go to church is people bowing down to icons and man made crosses. I'm having a hard time going to my church since I see these things, but I'm glad I found your podcast because I consider you guys my church. Keep up the good work, love you my brothers. So that's kind of cool. Like the common the common thing is like no matter what religious tradition they're coming from, It's like the Spirit of God nudges people towards truth, right? They're like, I don't know if I'm down with some of this stuff I'm seeing. Like, what's up with that? And so it's like God is waking up a remnant, right? He's calling out people from all denominations, all beliefs, even from New Age, even from paganism, even from just crazy situations. And he's calling them to investigate truth. He's calling them to come out of some of this stuff and so it's it's really, really, really cool to see people who are waking up the truth and hopefully you'll find that truth that you're seeking after. That's our prayer for you tonight. Thank you for writing in. Phil, what's your take on this question, man?
1: I think it's really I, I think BDK, you do a great job lining up the order of the questions. I think you spend some time thinking about that because there's just like a natural flow that seems to progress through the episode. So awesome. I think this question is really good. And dude um, or ma'am, I I, I don't know. uh, I don't know if you're a a woman or a a man. I'm sorry. I just assumed you were a man for some reason. When you said Greek Orthodox, I assumed a guy with a beard. I'm sorry (laughs) about that. Um, but I think this is a great, great question, a great question, because like anything can turn into an idol. That's not God. You know, anything other than God can turn into an idol in our lives because it's so easy to elevate anything above God or to put anything close to God. You know, the the first commandment, you shall have no other gods beside me, you know, Not above me, not beside me, not below me, not around me, like nowhere in my presence. Nowhere, you know, we're not going to have any other competition, no competition with God for the throne in our lives, not even ourselves. And so like with the Lord's Supper, like I think that can turn into an idol. It can. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of the Protestant traditions have revolted against like the every week tradition of the early that was an early christian thing that's not a catholic thing that's an early christian thing they were doing it every week some of them were doing it every day but like kind of like um i guess the previous question was saying they're seeing it be like really stale and so like or maybe it's turning into like an idol maybe people put more faith in this piece of bread being able to forgive them than God himself. Or they think, you know, like they can do whatever they want, but because they put a piece of bread in their mouth, now they're fine. You know, that, that turned a piece of bread into God. And that piece of bread is not God. It's not. That's a piece of bread. You know, it was created by God. And so... We have to be really careful with this kind of stuff. And yeah, you know, I think a cross can absolutely become idolatrous. Like if, if, if you're confronted with someone who's manifesting demons and normally you wear a cross around your neck and that day you forgot to wear a cross. And now you feel powerless because you don't have a cross, you know, to like point at the person. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't have my cross Well guess what You've just demonstrated that that cross Is more powerful to you than the Holy Spirit Inside of you So that cross is now your functional God Which means it's an idol You know Like Or wearing a cross on your shirt As a substitution for like really Living a holy life You know And really dedicating your life to the Lord because I put a cross on, you know, I have a cross shirt on today. I don't have to, like, really do my Bible study. I don't have to really be devoted to Christ because I have a cross on a bumper sticker on my car. You know, like, that kind of stuff is, a cross can absolutely be be an idol. Like, oil. I, I've seen this happen. Like, I've seen people freak out um, because someone someone needed prayer for healing. And a member in the church was like, Oh, we can't pray. I, I don't have oil. I don't have oil. It's like for real. Mm-hmm. Show me one place. Show me one place in the Bible where someone was freaking out because they didn't have oil. You know, show me one place where they needed oil, like a story. I'm not talking about like a letter, but a story where they needed oil to pray for someone's healing. Like, I know it says in James 5 that the elders of the church will anoint you for with oil for healing. Yeah, but show me one story where someone prayed for someone else's healing and they used oil. Show it. Like, we're not believing in the in the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We're not elevating God to his proper place in so many times in our lives. Like, and so, like, we can place more emphasis on carrying a Bible and keeping it spotless than on reading the Bible and doing what it says. So we can make the Bible an idol rather than the God who spoke it, you know, who inspired it. But we have our Bible with us, you know, so that makes us superior or in good standing with God just because we have a Bible. You know, so yeah. Gosh, I could really go off for a long time on this subject. I think you have a great, great attitude, but, um, you know, to be asking these questions, I don't think you necessarily have to like leave that church or something like that, but I think it'd be good if you can like first start with yourself, God, are there any idols in my life? And then like deal with those, repent of those, and Try to start walking like that and like tear those things down, you know, where you see an idol tear it down in your own life, in your own life. And then people will start asking you questions eventually. And uh, that will, that will provide the opportunity for dialogue. And I'd encourage you not to do it in like a, you know, in a prideful way, like, and I'm better than y'all cause I see the truth and y'all don't, but in a, do it in a confessional way. Like, I feel like God's really been working on my heart in this issue because I feel like I I've been putting more emphasis on this thing created by God or created by man rather than on the creator himself, the ultimate creator God. And so I feel like God's calling me to get things in their proper place and have God really be on the throne. So I hope that helps.
0: Amen. And I'm with you on this and I want to take it even deeper for a second because, you know, I get the fact that some people wear crosses or what would Jesus do, bracelets and all these other things. And I get that. Like, okay, fine. But like, and I get the fact that it's an easy target for us to look at and say, well, this is an idol. Or if we go to a church and we see a crucifix or we see people with rosaries, we're like, that's an idol and that should be bad. But like a lot of times we don't understand the deeper sin of idolatry, and it's something that we really need to come to grips with as the church if we ever want to be the remnant of God. So my definition of idol would be threefold. First, it's a physical image or an icon that you would worship, like a graven image. And God forbid that because a lot of times in the pagan nations, these priests would call down evil spirits to inhabit these idols. So there were always demonic entities behind an idol. And it was for people's protection, if you think about it. Like, if idols began to speak or weep tears of blood or some of the stuff you see, right, it can be very deceptive. I mean, just ask people in the Catholic Church. So God is, he's an anti-graven image. Second, it would be anything you worship spiritually more than you worship God. If you spend more time watching TV than you do reading your Bible, that can, can be a form of idolatry um, because what you sacrifice your time to really truly shows who you're sacrificing everything to who your God is because you sacrifice what you love the best for God. Or lastly, and this is one that people don't always catch, it's anything that distracts you or distorts your understanding of who God is. Is or what your relationship is with him, like and here's an example, like you can make up a God in your own mind, you can make up a God that you believe is one way and that condones certain things that aren't in the Bible. you may call him God, you may say that he's down with x y z in my life, but is he the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible isn't down with x y z. So a lot of times we redefine who God is and we make a God in our own image or in our own minds that allows us to be happy. And all three are very dangerous for various reasons. Biblically, the children of Israel sinned against God when they built a golden calf, right? They made this God idol using the calf God of Egypt, which was very culturally relevant to them, but they still called him Yahweh. They didn't call him the golden calf. They didn't call him by an Egyptian name. They called him Yahweh. They were like taking the culture of Egypt that they were a part of and they were adding Yahweh to it. And when Yahweh showed up, the reason they did this is Yahweh showed up in the camp and it greatly scared them and it distressed them. Beyond belief. He showed up on that mountain. There was all the thundering, there was all the lightning. The holiness of God struck that place. They were like, Hey man, uh Moses, you go, you 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 talk with God, you come back, you tell us what are you saying. God scares us. We don't like feeling under this conviction. I mean, if God shows up every time in the Bible, people are like hitting the ground, ashen faced, like because you become very aware of your sin. So it's very easy to want to create a golden calf or a golden idol that you can feel at ease around so they put up this golden calf they got drunk they had an orgy they danced naked before it they were saying hey this is our new yahweh we like this yahweh this this yahweh doesn't have eyes that can see into our hearts this yahweh doesn't have a voice that can speak and rebuke us and at this point if you can't say amen to that analogy say ouch please say ouch because that's what's going on in the modern church, but let's even make it more personal for a moment, right? Because after that, God is like, okay, he, 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 the golden calf gets destroyed. It gets ground up. People get killed for their rebellion. And he's like, okay, now I'm going to make a tabernacle. I'm going to dwell in that. I'm not going to come down the mountain. I'm going to dwell in that. But there's going to be bloody animal sacrifices in this. And I'm doing it as a shadow of the one that's going to come and die for you. So, you're only going to offer these sacrifices in here, nowhere else. You're not to go anywhere else to do it. You're not to go into the groves like the heathens do. You're to only offer sacrifices in this place. Well, why? Why was he so hung up about that? Because once again, this tabernacle, right, it was a disturbing thing. There were people, I mean, imagine living in that camp, waking up every morning and hearing the daily sacrifices, hearing the bleeding, the death calls the death rattles of of animals, imagine the smell, the smell and stench of death. Imagine the, the visuals of the blood, the gore. It really disturbed people. It kind of harshed their vibe if you want to be all valley girlish about it. So it was very natural that they dug the ways of the heathen. The heathen, they did even worse sacrifices than God did in the temple. They sacrificed humans and babies and did all kinds of gross And satanic things, but they did it in the groves, right? They did it amongst foliage. They did it amongst leaves. They did it amongst branches and beautiful flowers. And what they did is they covered up all the things that would make you uncomfortable so that you could still have fun having your orgies while your firstborn son got put in the hands of Moloch. It shattered, or it sheltered the gravity of the sin. The tabernacle was in stark stark uh opposition to that though right it was bare it was bare there were only a couple like pieces of furniture in it you went in there and you saw your sin and your shame and the volume was turned up to 11. the horror of that moment god put there on purpose so that they would know that they were offending a holy god and isn't this the way it is today right the cross of christ the naked cross of christ is the same way, but yet we make it some gold necklace or some neon sign or some wooden idol or some trendy t-shirt. But it's not. It's a cruel curse. It's an instrument of torture. It's a place of pain and death. It's capital punishment. The cross screams at you that you reap what you sow, that no one, including me, is innocent, that my sin will find me out, and there's a horrible price to pay. But what do we do? We put up leaves on our crosses. If there's even a cross at all in a church, it's a neon cross, or it's a very well-lit cross, and it's all beautiful. And how many churches are groves to heathen idolatry worship? Because we've done that thing. We've obfuscated our sin. We don't sing songs like, Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross, he says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but lost, I pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did eer such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We don't sing that in church. We sing a song that says the word Jesus 25 times in a row. So we feel all happy and grovy. But we do, right? (laughs) We sing all these vertical love songs, but we don't sing. When I survey the wondrous cross, or the old rugged cross, or or, uh, go to dark Gethsemane, ye that feel the tempter's power, right? The crushing songs, abide with me, fast flows the even tide. In life or death, O Lord, abide with me. Like we don't sing these songs that show us the, the horrible nature of our sin. And so we never understand the glory that love so amazing, but yet we expect everyone to give their heart, their soul, their life, their all. God is done with groves. If God had his way, he would tear down every neon cross and break half the worship bands in churches. And he would say, gaze upon the cross. Gaze upon the wondrous cross, the beauty and the shame of it, the horror of it all. So when we contemplate ourselves, some of the old, 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 if you listen to old Pentecostal sermons, old holiness sermons, it's all about seeing Jesus. It's all about seeing the cross. The cross used to be the most Important thing preached in every single sermon because people needed to understand the gravity of that. It was the only way to sh- to shatter idolatry from people's lives because the love of Christ is so amazing. It's so amazing and we need to get back to it today. We need to get back to that Holy Ghost awe we need to pray in our prayer closets, God reveal the cross of Christ to me. I want to see Jesus high and lifted up, right? I want to see Jesus. So that's where I'm standing in idolatry. I'm sorry I got kind of crazy at the end there about smashing worship bands and stuff. But it's like people don't <laughs> understand that. People don't understand that, man. Like we are doing what they did in the pagan groves, over and over and over again, we're sheltering ourselves from the one truth that could radically free us and inspire us to have a love so amazing, so divine, that demands our heart, our soul, our life, our all. Because only when we see, Phil, just the unworthiness of ourselves and that great ransom, man, it especially if you've come from a past where you've lived a horrible life and you and you're you were totally aware that you didn't deserve God's mercy, man. And then he gives it to you and and you didn't deserve it? Like and you realize that it was your fault that Jesus died? I mean that changes everything, dude. Everything. There's no more freeing experience than that.
1: No, you're right. You're right, dude. Uh you know, we're um patting people all the way Patting people on the back all the way to hell, you know, in a lot of the songs, just comforting them the whole way, saying everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. And it's it's that's not the reality of the situation. And, you know, it's like hiding them from the cross um, instead of lifting up the cross, because if we lift up the cross, then it's going to shine a light on our on our sin but that that really goes to what um John 3 talks about doesn't it when um you know here's the verdict uh John says you know let me pull that up cuz i don't want to misquote it if i can get my bible app working real quick um probably going to have to cut out that dead air people don't like dead air in a podcast <laughs> This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God, and so like you know like we we're not really bringing them to the light of the cross because nobody wants their deeds exposed. But really, if we'd come into the light and have our deeds exposed, actually what we expose is the cross, because that's why he got on the cross, was for our deeds, our misdeeds, our wicked deeds. That's the whole reason for the cross, and that actually is what brings us the healing that we're trying to, that will actually comfort us, that will actually heal us. So, I don't know, if I'm interpreting you right, it seems like I'm I feel like I'm right in line with, with what you're saying. I think it's great.
0: Yeah, it amazes me that Jesus was the most innocent man. He was gentle as a lamb, right? He he never did anything wrong. He forgived his oppressors. He forgave those who persecuted him. He turned the other cheek literally. He gave up his beard to the to the smiters. The Bible talks about how they pulled the hair out of his cheeks. I mean, it is crazy. He never did anything wrong, And yet when he's nailed to the cross, God judges him as if he's the worst child molester in the world. He judges him as if he's the worst sinner in the world. He judges him as if he is the worst mass murderer in the world. And he never did any of that. He never was, but we were. And, And yet he was judged that strictly. He was judged more than any man ever was the full wrath of god poured out on jesus mm. and and we need to see ourselves that way we it's not i mean like it's like that old saying the devil doesn't care if your pastor preaches about the cross the devil doesn't care if you wear a cross around your neck what the devil is scared about is if you see that your sins put jesus on that cross mm. And that a great exchange was made, his life for yours. That's the truth that the devil doesn't want you to know or to comprehend for yourself. That you're giving up your life, but in reality, Jesus is giving you his life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's just a radical thing. All right, got to get on to the next question because um, otherwise we'll talk about this all night. I can talk about that all night. I mean, I love the grace of God, man, It's and the blood of God. There's just so much to this. Anyway, the next question says, hey there, man, I'm a huge fan of your podcast in the fourth watch. I listen to you guys along with Canary Cry every week during my night shift job. I always can't wait for the next episode. Glory be to God. You guys are doing a great job and a great work for the kingdom. I have a question for you guys. One is Genesis 4:13 through 16. Could you help me understand this further? It says that Cain was driven out from the face of the earth, and it said that he would be a fugitive in the earth. To me, that sounds like he was placed inside the earth, hollow earth, then the Bible says God placed a mark on him. so far in the Bible, I' have only found three marks that are mentioned: one in the beginning in Genesis, talking about the mark of Cain, then there's the mark of the marks of Jesus galatians six seventeen and last, the mark of the beast in revelations. I wonder if the mark of Cain has any connection to the mark of the beast. Maybe Satan's bloodline comes out of Cain's lineage could be the reason God had to start over again with Seth. Anyway, sorry for the rambling. My question is, what is this land of Nod mentioned in Genesis 4.16, which the Bible says is east of Eden? If I'm wrong, isn't Eden there talking about the Garden of Eden? So wherever the garden is east of the land of Nod, where Cain started his lineage, which could be inner earth, maybe have some connection to hollow earth and the theory of some inner alien race coming upon the earth, which we know is a deception as to what is really going to happen. I don't know. I know this is a lot. It's been on my spirit heavily for a while. What's your take on Cain, the land nod east of Eden, and the mark of Cain? Thanks again, guys. God bless you, brother. All right, so I don't mind you rambling in your question because I might ramble a little bit in the answer. So it'll be a it'll be a give and take sort of thing. So here's my take on all of this. You asked a bunch of questions. I'll try to gain all the Questions here, I'll try to get them all covered. I'm going to say some stuff that's going to be very, it could be very big-time misconstrued, and it might be something you've never heard before. So hang on to that part of it, and please listen carefully as we get to the end of, as I answer this conversation, and take what I say in context, okay? So... Let's start with the beginning. I don't believe that Cain was driven underground. Okay? I don't believe he was driven into the inner earth. Um Cain actually founded one of the great cities of the time, and just because the Bible says in doesn't mean that it's always necessarily underground. It can just plainly mean in or on the face of the earth. So he was he started this city, right? And he had descendants. One of his descendants was even named Enoch. So, like, there was a counter Enoch. I mean, like, there was all kinds of things going on. So he wasn't underground. He was actually forming a city. There was a lineage there. They fought. It it got crazy. It was one of the reasons why there was all this war on the earth. The second part of your question is this thing about Cain and the bloodline and Seth and Cain's bloodline being of Lucifer and things like that. And I personally 100% reject the theory that Cain was in any way part of the bloodline of Satan or the seed of Satan or that he had the bloodline of Satan in him. I totally disregard that for a couple basic reasons, but here's a couple good ones. If you read the Bible, basically every firstborn child belongs to the Lord. That's a biblical standard. Um, And the firstborn according to the book of Leviticus, sanctifies the matrix or sanctifies the womb. We know that Eve's firstborn was Cain, and that if that child was Satan, then the womb would not have been sanctified, and there would have never been a Messiah or a seed that would have came about to fulfill the Messianic prophecy. Also, if Satan was Cain's father, he would have been Nephilim and unredeemable. And we read in the Bible when Cain had hatred in his heart against Abel, God preemptively comes to Cain and warns him not to let hatred take hold of him. He actually is warning that Satan is at the door of his heart, and he's like giving him a chance to turn it around, to, to get rid of the hate, to repent, so that he, he doesn't murder his brother. So God's giving him that chance to repent, so he can't be Nephilim, he can't be seed of Satan, he legitimately was the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Now your final question, what's the mark of Cain? Now the Bible doesn't say specifically what the mark of Cain is, so I can't say, well, thus saith the Lord, this is the mark of Cain. I can't totally know what it is, and I can't totally be dogmatic about it. But does the mark have anything to do with Bible prophecy or the mark of the beast is your next question, and I do have a theory about that. And it's only a theory because it's based off of sources outside the Bible and outside of Torah. This is where I said you have to kind of take what I'm saying in context and for the spirit I'm saying it in because I don't believe in the Talmud. I don't believe in the Kabbalah. I don't believe that those are Christian sources. I believe they should be avoided. I believe that they should not be doctrinally things that we base our doctrine on and they are largely the traditions of men and The Kabbalah itself is highly occultic and part of Jewish mysticism. But I do believe that the bad guys believe them to be the truth. And I do believe that they are using them and that these heresies are creeping into the church and that it's happening for a reason. And it's part of the end times great deception. And what scares me is I see Christian Zionism growing I see people who were once solidly Christians who believed in the Trinity now embracing modalism because they started becoming Torah observant. I've seen Christians say that Jesus is actually the antichrist. I've had a block three people this week. What? Who say that Jesus was the antichrist. And and my heart broke over a brother who was a a huge person in the truth movement that once believed in the Trinity that now doesn't believe that anymore. So, like, these things are creeping into Christianity. I see famous Christian messianic ministers using the Talmud and the Zohar and even the Kabbalah to back up stuff in the Bible to say the Bible says this. And for reference, it also, the Torah or the Zohar and the Kabbalah and the the Talmud agree. So we have all these clouds of witnesses things going on. And what I worry about is that a theological framework is being set up in place to anoint a false messianic antichrist. And I'm going to get into some of this in episode 100, but I'm going to keep this, I'm going to try to make this really germane to the mark of Cain and how it could relate to Bible prophecy. So if I share what they feel the mark of Cain is, And how it might tie into the Antichrist, please understand that I do not endorse the Talmud or the Zohar or the Kabbalah. I am just saying that this belief is out there, they believe it, and what they believe about it could tie into and could explain a very key event in Bible prophecy. So if you're going to place what I'm about ready to say on YouTube and say that BDK believes in the Talmud, please include that last part, that disclaimer in your, your YouTube clip. So, the Talmud would actually teach that the mark of God that was placed in Cain's forehead is the Hebrew letter Tav. That's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In Paleo Hebrew, it looks like an X or a cross like the Chi in the Catholic Cairo. That's, if you know what I'm talking about, if you're a Catholic, it's that P with the X going through it. The the Tav in Paleo Hebrew, the earliest form of P. In Hebrew is the X. It later became a plus sign or a cross. And then in modern Hebrew, it looks like kind of like an N, sort of. Now, ancient Jewish mystical rabbinical sources teach that the cross is a sign of protection. And we see that tradition carried on today, like vampires are crossing ourselves or holding out crosses for exorcisms. That actually came from this tradition. When Passover happened, they placed the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. It formed a cross or a tav on the crossbeam. So once again, symbol of God, tav protection. If you read Ezekiel 9:4, an angel is marking the foreheads of the righteous Jews during the destruction of Jerusalem. He is commanded to quote unquote set a mark upon them. If you look up that word "mark" in the Strong's, so it's 8420. That word is actually tav. So if you read it. Right in the Hebrew it says that the angel is commanded to set a tav upon the forehead of these people. The Talmud comments on this and just says it point blank. Quote, the sign tav was used when God decided the destruction of Jerusalem and ordered the angel Gabriel to put a tav on the citizens of Jerusalem to differentiate the righteous from the wicked. The Jewish Talmud also teaches something very specific about the seal of God. It says quote The seal of the Holy One, blessed be he, is truth. God's seal in creation is truth. The last letter or seal of the word truth itself, the seal of God's seal is the letter tav. So life, creation itself is aleph, amet, tav, three Hebrew letters. Now, we have to understand here for a moment that this is getting into the realm of Jewish mysticism here, Kabbalah, right? Basically, Kabbalah teaches that ancient Hebrew is the language God spoke, and he created everything by speaking it with words. And so, these ancient Hebrew languages, these ancient Hebrew words, there's supernatural power in them. And if you arrange the words into the correct sentences, they have the power to create life and death. They have the power to call things into existence. It's very word of faith, almost, like And I believe this is what the Bible, the Bible, I believe, talks about this when it says that the Antichrist is a man who has understanding of dark sentences. He's a Jewish mystic, a Kabbalist. He believes that you can take these Hebrew words and place them into proper sentences and and call dark sentences and sorceries and powers into existence. Now, there is a Jewish historical mystical legend called the Legend of the Gollum or the Golem, and this is really interesting. There was an award-winning book illustrated, an illustrated book entitled Golem that retells the story of the Golem. I have this book, and I'm going to read from the end notes of the book here. And please note, this is not a Christian book by a Christian author. I believe the author is actually either an ascetic Jew or an atheistic Jew, but he's basically illustrating this, this legend of the Golem. And in the as he's, you know, in the afterward, they do it in the afterwards, not the before words. He writes this. Golem is the Hebrew word for shapeless mass. In the Talmud, the revered collection of Jewish civil and sacred law, the word denotes anything imperfect or incomplete. Unconscious Adam, initially a body without soul, is referred to as a golem. In Jewish tradition, to create life is to approximate the power of the Almighty. The making of a golem could be instituted only by the most pious and religious man, a Tazik. The Tazik must be thoroughly learned in Kabbalah, a mystical body of knowledge aimed at understanding the hidden nature of God and putting the understanding to practical use to heal the sick and combat evil. According to the Sefer Yizira, the and if I butchered that, I'm sorry, the, life, the giving of life was achieved by reciting combinations of the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, because 22 letters derive from the Tetragrammaton, the infallible four-letter name of God, they possess holy power. Since God used the letters in uttering the words that created the universe, human can wield the same forces by peripherally mastering combinations of the Hebrew letters. The story of the Golem serves as a cautionary tale about the limits of human power. It has inspired the works of compositions, composers, and authors. And there is sufficient evidence of its influence in Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein. The tale may even prove prophetic as the fields of computer science, robotics, and gene manipulation advance. Technological golems may arise in our culture. He's not a Christian saying that. Now, basically, the tale of the golem in this book goes like this. In 1580, Rabbi Lo, L-O-E-W, L-O-E-W, was the chief rabbi in Czechoslovakia, And the Jews were basically herded into the ghettos where they were greatly persecuted and they were about to be attacked and possibly exterminated. So the rabbi goes to the riverbank and creates a man out of mud and clay and writes the seal of God upon its forehead, truth and life. Aleph met Tav and other Kabbalistic spells and says the name of God and life comes into the golem and he names the golem Joseph. The golem defends the Jews, saves them, but begins to grow too big, too powerful. So the rabbi has to destroy it. So he erases the first letter aleph from the golem's head, and it just becomes metav, which comes from life, and now it just says death, and the thing dies. Now in Israel, it is said that there are 35 masters of the Kabbalah called the Lamed Hay, and they have the power to create life every time. One of these 35 people dies, another is initiated into the group to take their place. They must perform two miracles. They must go to a mikvah or a baptismal and say the name of God and the water will turn green and bubble, or they must make a small clay, gall, a small clay doll golem and do the golem ritual and then it will sit up and then the, Allah must be, the aleph must be erased in three days or this thing will actually begin to rule the world. And they base it off this Jewish thing in the Golem book. So why am I saying all this? Well, the Tav, like we said before, is basically a cross, right? The Bible says that there are seven empires that are types of the Antichrist. And if you look at each of these religious systems in this seven empire kingdom, each revered the cross. Egypt had the Ankh, which was a symbol of life and death. The priestesses of Isis marked a cross in their forehead. The Babylonians had the T cross for Tammuz, who was the son of Nimrod. The Medes and the Persians used the mystical Tav for protection. Alexander the Great used the Kai, that X, and wrapped it around the headbands of his greatest warriors for protection because he was a warrior king. In Rome, Bacchus, the god of the new wine, his symbol was the cross. And as the god of healing, There was the cross with the two serpents on it. So, if you want to go NAR on this, you have a god of new wine and occultic healing, sign of the cross. Hitler, no wait, let me take it back. The Holy Roman Empire started using the cross with Constantine. Constantine had a vision of the cross, and in, in this sign, conquer. The Catholic Church uses the Cairo, it uses the cross, it uses the rosary, and Hitler used the swastika, which was a twisted Hindu cross which stood for resurrection. There was also a Jewish tradition that says the Messiah will come as both the son of Joseph, like the Golem and the son of David. The Talmud teaches that the Messiah will come first and fight a series of war in the desert against the Israeli's enemies, but then will be killed. He'll be brought back into Jerusalem and he will be resurrected and then he will become the son of, of David. Now, there are those within the NAR and the Torah movement that believe in modalism. They teach that Yeshua was just a man until he was either baptized or until he was born again at his resurrection. Then he became a son of God. So now here's my theory after I set that up. What if this son of Joseph, like the golem, in the desert, where Jesus is like, if they say he's in the desert, don't believe him. Dies fighting a Muslim Egyptian war. I mean, the Bible tells who the the people of the Antichrist and Daniel will fight, and he fights like these this Muslim coalition of Egypt's. And I'm, I'll get it, it right in episode one hundred, but like he fights this, and then the Bible says that the Antichrist receives a deadly wound in his head, right, and he's he's dead. But we know this deadly wound gets healed. What if the false prophet uses this as a framework to explain the resurrection? Because he's not going to go out and say, In the name of Satan, I raise you from the dead. He's not going to do that. These people are going to be looking for a false Jewish Messiah. They're going to be looking for the son of Joseph to be reborn. What if he writes a cross? or a tav in its forehead, and he comes back to life like a golem. But instead of of it being the spirit of this dude, it's the spirit of Nimrod, Apollyon, that's cohabiting this body along with this other thing in this resurrection. Now the world and all the Torah-keeping, the Christian Zionists, the NAR, all these people who believe that a Messiah is just, that, that Jesus is just a modalistic expression of God that happened at his baptism or his resurrection. Now Jewish mysticism, the Kabbalah, and this belief of modalism meet in one person because now Jesus doesn't have to ascend from the clouds. He can be a military leader who took on these wars of Daniel, who died in the desert and now is resurrected in the secret chambers. With the Tav, or the mark of Cain of protection on his forehead, a cross, a Catholic cross. Just saying, it would explain a lot of things and be a giant red herring that a lot of people would hook, line, and sink or fall for. So I hope I answered your question. I know it was a long, rambly answer. I hope it was something kind of new and interesting you might have heard. Um, Maybe you've heard it before. Um, is the Antichrist a living golem? I don't know. That's what they believe. Does the Bible speak to it? That's the real issue. Brother Phil?
1: Dude, I'm just going to let that sit. I think you did great. I'm, I'm just curious how anybody could, like any Christian, could think that Jesus was the Antichrist. Is that what you were saying? That's crazy, man.
0: No, I literally blocked three people this week. And the reason is, is because they're like, well, this Jesus that you worship is the Antichrist because his name is Yeshua. And you think that he's the third person of the Trinity, but he's not. He is God's created son. He is Yeshua, the king. And all you people are going to fall for this false Jesus. And it's like, what? What? See, that's the sacred name thing that I'm talking about, dude. It's like... It's like we believe there's some sort of mystical power in calling him by the right name, right? And that this Greek Jesus is, isn't is God. Why? Because he's, he's a trinity. He's always existed. He's not co-equal with the Father. They're like, the Father can't be, God can't be killed, so how did he die on the cross? You know? Like, God never dies. How did he get resurrected? And it's just like, this thing is, you would be just shocked at some of the The stalwarts of our faith that just compromise over this stuff, dude. It's crazy. It's definitely setting up something very sinister, I believe. And I literally, I literally believe that the world is going to accept a false messiah, a Jewish messiah as Jesus Christ or Yeshua, as a returned Yeshua they will think that he is the leader of this new golden age. They will counterfeit the millennial kingdom, but this dude will end up being the world's final pharaoh, man. I'm telling you. And hopefully, in episode 100, I'll prove that. So. Yeah,
1: you know, the church definitely believes that they can't be deceived. You know, as if you know, as if the elect could be deceived. Yeah, but we're not going to be. But there's a great deception coming for those who don't you know, love the commands of Jesus who don't keep the commands of Jesus. And, uh, man, it's going to be crazy times coming up.
0: Yeah. And if we get into this whole thing of like, we believe these signs, these bleeding icons, these, all these idols, I mean, just all of these things that are going on, dude, it's like, we don't understand that this theology is just a framework, And that it's so nebulous even at some point that all they really have to do is the event has to go down. And then they just have to say, well, brother, so-and-so believe this. And they just have to even kind of quote them out of context. And all the Christians are going to be like, yeah, yeah, we believe that. Look, something Christian happened. He put a cross on that dude's forehead and he rose from the dead. Yeah. And the Kabbalists will be like, yeah, because that's that's what we do. And the Jewish people will be like, that's a Tav, man. And it's crazy, dude. It's crazy. Hmm. Anyways, um, Brother Phil, you're up. I've been hugging the mic now for a little while. So the question is, Hi, BDK. I'm listening to the June episode of Ready With an Answer. It's meaty as always. Thank you for all the work. Thank you for all that work and to Phil too. I have a question about universalism, Lake of Fire, as a purgatory situation. Why did Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It would seem that those would be people who'd specifically rejected him in person after seeing his testimony play out before their eyes. Shouldn't they have been candidates for the judgment rather than forgiveness? Is there some provision for ignorance? Thank you for your time, and God bless you. And that is the question. So apparently in the last episodes that we had done, the June Ready with an Answer, we talked about universalism. Whoever was listening to this, it sparked a further question in their head when they heard it. And they were like, well, what about when Jesus was like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Were those guys forgiven kind of like against their will or because they were ignorant? Is there a provision for ignorance and does this kind of prove universalism?
1: So I'm going to come at it from kind of a literal, uh, I guess, approach uh, from the questioner's point of view. Just uh, why did Jesus say, Father, forgive them? So I, I think... First, like Paul says in, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 8, like, the folks really didn't understand what they were doing. Um, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 8, uh, that the rulers of this age, if they had understood, if they had understood, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. And, um, Like, if they had understood what they were doing, now, whether that's talking about, like, Pilate and Caiaphas, Annas, or if that's talking about them and supernatural beings, you know, the evil ones who are, like, relishing in Jesus' crucifixion, I don't know. But it seems like he's saying if these rulers really understood that they were crucifying their helper— they wouldn't have done that if they had really understood that aspect. They wouldn't have done it. And so that that's one aspect uh, that's going on. But I think the bigger point um, of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think the bigger point that's being made is that Jesus has come to model for us how we are supposed to live. And so, like, why would he do that? Well, that's what he expected us to do. Remember, like, he had said in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, bless those who curse you, right? Pray for those who who persecute you, this kind of stuff. Like, he had already said that stuff to his disciples. So what kind of a leader would he be if when he's being persecuted, He didn't pray for his persecutors. What kind of a leader would he be if he talked the talk but didn't walk the walk? You know, if he played by different rules than he expected us to live to play by, that's not the kind of leader Jesus is. If he calls us to do something, he shows that he's willing to do it himself. And so he's up there on the cross modeling for us what he expects of us. And you see that, you know, that his followers understood that and came in line with him in that same kind of behavior. You see that with Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He's being persecuted for the faith, for the testimony of Jesus. And as he's being stoned to death, falling on his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. He's basically saying, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, you know. Forgive them for this action. He's praying for their forgiveness. That's pretty awesome, you know. So um, I think that's the bigger point that we need to look at um, and really keep in mind. If Jesus taught it and Jesus lived it, and especially if Jesus taught it, Jesus lived it, and then the apostles taught it and they lived it too – then we are definitely called to live it as well. And I know that's not necessarily really getting at your question about the provision for ignorance, but I think that's the most important thing to to take away. BDK, do you want to talk about the provision for ignorance?
0: I do a little bit. And I think that the provision of ignorance, um, you know, like they don't know what they're doing. Like they think they're killing me, but in reality, nobody's murdering me at all because No man takes my life from me. I lay it down and I pick it back up, right? So that's there. Um, I I think you really hit it on the head when you talk about this modeling, right, of how we should be, because we can look at that from the opposite side, right? If we follow that example and someone sins against us, we don't hold ill will against them we don't feel salty we don't we don't live in unforgiveness we don't you know carry grudges we say we forgive you you sinned against me but that doesn't mean that god forgives that sin that just means i release you from this because if you really knew who you were sinning against you wouldn't be doing this because you're not really sinning against me you're sinning against the christ that lives in me it's like we're not greater than our master, like Phil was saying. It's like if the world hated Jesus, they will hate us. Why? Not because we're anything special, but they hate the Jesus in us. And Jesus said, they hate me because I say their works are evil, which is a whole nother show. But like this whole thing of universalism, right? Like Just because Jesus said, forgive them for putting these nails in my wrist, these Roman soldiers, forgive them. Forgive the the Sanhedrin for you know mocking me. Forgive Alt Pilate for making this sentence. Forgive them. What he was basically saying is, I I'm not holding this against you. I'm I'm doing exactly what you would do that I'm expecting you to do. But that doesn't mean that God took these people against their will and placed them into salvation. He was saying, I am not going to hold this against you. I'm not holding ill will against you. I'm not grinding an ax with you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to open up a way for you to be saved if you accept my terms of surrender, if you repent, if you apprehend that salvation by faith. Like, he didn't withhold the opportunity for them to be saved after he said, it is finished. You know, this whole thing of universalism is just insane because we look at it, you know, like we're talking about the human aspect of it, right? And it's like, well, God's a God of love, and he would want everyone to wind up in heaven with him and be with him forever, even if it's against their will. Like the, like the shack seems to talk about, like, humanity didn't get a vote. Jesus just did it. Um, No. I mean, that's not love. I mean, like, Phil, and I don't mean, this is probably a really bad analogy, so I probably shouldn't say it, but, like, if I had a thing for your wife, which I don't, so don't think that I do. But if I didn't, I was stalking her and I was forcing her to be with me against her will. How would you feel about that as a husband, dude?
1: Yep. Going to see some rage, man.
0: You're going to see some rage and you're a pacifist, dude. But I bet, I bet we would be having more than a theological throwdown. Yeah. Because that's not love. Love doesn't stalk people or force people to love them or to spend time with them. That's codependency. That's a whole mess of bad things. But yet we expect that God should be that way, right? That all paths should lead to God. That if we don't want anything to do with God on earth, that he should force us to spend time with him in eternity. I mean, that's where where universalism and this unending eternal love of God thing just falls flat on its face because it doesn't even work on a human level, let alone a spiritual one. Yeah. And I'm sorry if I said anything untowards towards your wife, dude, I didn't, didn't mean that. I'm just saying, I thought it was a good illustration, right? Sure. Cause you would, you would rise up and defend your wife, right?
1: Yeah, man. I mean, that's such a, Oh gosh, you're getting into a totally different subject.
0: It's not, it's not different though, because I, I, I'm, I'm sick and tired of Bible prophecy preachers, well-known ones, even verse, even saying that there's a form of universalism, but yet they go around and teach spiritual warfare. We want the protection of God, but we don't want to be His bride, right?
1: Yeah, man, I, I was, I was going down rabbit trails in my own mind in a totally different subject. That, that's all. I'm, I'm right there with you, man. I'm just, yeah. You just sent me down into all these different (laughs) conversations that I've had. It's totally besides the point that you're making. You're making a very coherent, cogent point. I'm (laughs) letting my mind wander.
0: And it's not that hard to do because it is late, brothers and sisters. It is late. All right. So we got more questions to go to, and they're only going to get awesomer from here. So let's move on to the next question. Um, well, we were talking about warfare, demonic possession, oppression. So this will tie right into it. I do do good, <laughs> good on this, man. Sometimes I don't even realize how good these flow together. So what yeah. are your thoughts on demonic possession, oppression? Does the initial salvation from Christ's sacrifice cleanse us from demons, or do we need a second cleansing? Or maybe we may have come to the Lord's calling, but sin has made us fall, therefore opening us up to oppression. I heard a teaching and wanted to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks, guys. And I, I, I know what you're talking about. I've seen these, these uh, deliverance ministers, um, some well-known ones on YouTube, and their whole church service is basically casting out devils, right? These are like American people. And all these saved, sanctified uh, sisters in Christ, you know, the black ladies wearing the big church hats, so obviously saved, acting like saved people, come up and they're all talking like they got demons in them, like each and every time. And so like the guy's casting all these demons out and he's delivering people and the demons are like, we're all amongst you in your church and we have all these strongholds and, and we're going to come and kill you. And it's like. Okay, if you have a church full of saved people, full of demons, that's a whole mess of problems. So, yeah, this is this is this whole thing that like Christians can be possessed by demons. Can they be, you know, oppressed? There's a lot of confusion on this. This goes into this whole hyper charismatic spiritual warfare thing. Um I'll just be honest, and I'll try to keep this short and to the point this time. I don't believe a true blood-block Christian, spirit-filled Christian, can be possessed by a demon. Um, If you possess something, then by definition you own it. Like, I possess my car. I possess the title deed to my car. I put the keys in that ignition. That car is mine. I'll drive it wherever I want. That car does not own me. I own that car. I possess it. It's something that belongs to me. We as Christians, if we're truly Christians, we're bought with a price. And that price is the blood of Jesus, and that blood of Jesus is a restraining order against hell, signed in crimson letters. So I don't believe that a, uh, if you're if you're a true spirit filled Christian, if you're walking in the Spirit, you are not going to be possessed or owned by a devil. But I also have to make this thing this this one caveat here, because. We have so twisted salvation in the American church and the process of salvation that there's a lot of people that, that think they're saved and they're not saved because they've been told that salvation is repeating a sinner's prayer or saying some sort of mystical sentence, right? And then you're saved. When in reality, true biblical salvation is the Holy Spirit revealing to you your sin, you seeing your sin and how it grieves God, then the Holy Spirit working godly sorrow for your sin in your heart, and then you calling out to God for mercy and salvation and for his grace and for his saving power, and the Holy Spirit grants that repentance. And when that process is happening, in the process of salvation, what you're doing is you're closing doorways of ownership of the sins in your life that the demons are using to gain a foothold so like and even in the early christian church when you were baptized you had to renounce sin you had to renounce the devil you had to renounce all worldly ties like that act of deliverance was going on as part of the salvation process and so we lose a lot of that so it doesn't surprise me that on some hand there are people that walk around saying that they're christian then they might be totally possessed by devils but because they were probably never biblically saved Now, I believe a person can be oppressed by demonic forces, even in some rare instances demonized. If you're walking in just gross, unrepentant, unconfessed, knowledgeable sin, and you're making peace with your sin, you're you're, you're entering into a very dangerous territory. But oppression comes when we allow sin or unforgiveness in our life, or we allow things that shouldn't be in our life. When we give the devil a legal foothold, to oppress us and to put burdens on us and things like that, like that can happen. And in that instance, like you close those doorways by repentance, by refilling of the Holy Spirit or by seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that's where you need to start point blank. But other than that, it's a process of repentance. It's a process of closing doorways. It's a process of renouncing things. Maybe there's things in your house that are of your past or occult items. Maybe you need to get rid of those. Sometimes you can seek very biblical guidance and counseling as a form of deliverance, and that can help with oppression. But you don't want to get your oppression from word of faith, charismatic YouTube prophets. You want to seek someone who actually has a track record of working you through a process of realizing the doorways that are opening in your life that are causing the oppression, and then working with you to close those doorways, to forgive people that have wronged you, to get rid of things in your life that are hindering you, um, maybe throwing out your computer if you just watch too much Internet porn or you have to put something on there to stop it. It's It's taking legal control back of your life. It's enforcing the rule of God in your life. It's enforcing the victory of God in your life. It's making it from potential to reality. So that's what I kind of believe about all that. And that's done through the power of the Holy spirit. Brother Phil.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, Only thing I'd add to that, are just a couple of resources. Uh, I'd encourage folks to check out some of Derek Prince's work, not to be confused with Joseph Prince.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They always do too. They always confuse the two.
1: Yeah, man, do not do not watch or read Joseph Prince stuff, but please go read and watch Derek Prince stuff. That dude is legit. Really, really good teacher. Uh, a book of his that I've I've really enjoyed is called They Shall Expel Demons. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent book. Go check that out. And One of the things that he talks about quite a bit in that book is this issue of demonization. And he makes like like you were talking about BDK, like making the distinction between possessed and like demonized uh, or oppressed. And um, so that's a really helpful tool. It's a small book. It's a very easy to read book. Got a lot of stories in there. Check that out. Another book is by a guy named Francis McNutt, M-A-C-N-U-T-T. Uh, it's called Deliverance from Evil Spirits a lot of really good helpful tips uh like case study kind of things um, it's just awesome a lot of good stories deliverance from evil spirits by Francis McNutt so check those out
0: that is a that is a seminal book that is a oh, that's a workbook dude that's a deliverance manual in and of itself man and uh yeah. Derek Prince's book on spiritual warfare is really good too and his stuff on yeah. being baptized in the holy spirit And even praying in the Spirit is really good also.
1: The dude was a hardcore missionary, man. He just saw all this stuff and wrote and talked about it. I mean, it's legit.
0: Yeah, there are some people that are really uncomfortable with the gifts of the Spirit that would take issue with some of the theology of Derek Prince. But he was one of those old-school Pentecostal British dudes that, you know, yeah, I'm with you on that, man. He, he did a lot for the church. And if you ever watch him preach on YouTube and stuff like that, he's not one of yeah. these showy preachers. He's like, he gets up there and he teaches the word of God, which yep. most people don't do anymore. And, and that was like his thing. People asked him why he never got showy, why he never got all super charismatic. And he's like, I am doing the most spiritual warfare thing in the world. I am teaching the word of God. Demons quake at this. Hmm. Like, I don't need to be showy. They fear what I'm saying. I'm like, Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, well, wish we all would. <laughs> we need more exp we need more exposition. We need more preaching, man. Yeah. Uh, the power in those words, dude. Anyways, uh, let's see here. Next question. Hi, BDK and Phil. I really enjoyed listening to your shows on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Pray for you guys, Justin, and your guests regularly. I appreciate you that you are willing to share with us what the church has not, and will not. I would like for you to explain Isaiah 65, 17. I've asked a few others, a pastor friend and Bible-believing friends, their opinions, but they only give me the literal answer, which is we won't remember this life. I would like to know, if possible, if we will remember some things, like the blessings we've received that remind us of our Heavenly Father, uh, who really does know us and love us. Will we remember our pets, etc.? Thank you for your insights and help with this. It's been on my mind for almost a year. And just for reference, Isaiah 65:17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. Can you break that down for us, Brother Phil?
1: Just to get a little bit into Isaiah 65, if you go backwards one verse, it says... The former troubles are gonna be forgotten, all right? Because they are hidden from my sight, all right. The former troubles and it talks about for behold I create new heavens, new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to my mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. I'm gonna create Jerusalem for rejoicing, or people for gladness. I'll also create I'll also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And here's some troubles, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping, and sound of crying. Nor will there be in it an infant who dies, or who lives but just a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at an age of a hundred, and the one who does not reach the age of one hundred will be thought accursed. Um, and if you go to the beginning of the passage, you see like some of these troubles that are going on is is a bunch of sin, really, a lot of rejection of God being people's helper. And so there are all these troubles, right, that are not going to be remembered anymore. So um, I think that's the context that we need to uh, put verse 17 in, so it's like the way things were, the, the corruption of the way things were is not going to be remembered anymore. The corruption of the old earth, right? Uh, in comparison to the new earth, the corruption will not be remembered anymore. Uh, because, you know, we'll ask, ask some questions like, um, do you think we'll remember the cross? Do you think we'll remember the resurrection? When we, according to 1 Corinthians 13, says, you know, it says that when the perfect comes, we will know fully even as we're fully known. Well, what's that talking about? Is that talking about knowing God fully? Is that talking about knowing all things fully? What's it talking about? I don't know. I don't know. But it says we're going to know fully even as we're fully known. It would It would seem that we're worshiping the Lamb in Revelation quite a bit. You know, the people around the throne are worshiping the lamb um, and lamb standing as if it's slain. But that's that seems to be before new heavens and new earth. But is is Jesus also remembered as the lamb after that? I don't know. You know, I don't know if we're going to remember that. But if he's remembered as the lamb after that, in one sense, then the cross would seem to be something that we remember, which was part of the former earth. But um, maybe we would look at it as a in, a in a different light than something that's like terrible. We look at it as victory, as something that we we overcame by. So there's like a different spin on it. Now, I'm, I'm not totally sure how to answer your question. Um, I don't know. But I do know that Scripture says that God is good. And all he does is good. And, you know, about creation, creation is waiting for its, you know, redemption in one sense. It's eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God because, um, you know, it was it had futility and corruption forced upon it because of our sin. Um, So it's waiting to be, you know, transformed in a sense, too. And what is that going to look like? I don't know. C.S. Lewis had some ideas about it, but (laughs) I don't know if Fido's going to be talking up there or not and if you're going to be able to see him again or not. I I don't know. But I do know that um, what is what is going to be there is going to be far better than anything you've experienced here because you're going to be able to be with Jesus if if you make it to the new heavens and new earth. And that's going to be far better than anything. You know, the best times that you've had with your dog will pale in comparison to just regular times with Jesus up there. Like uh it's it's you, we cannot we cannot conceive, we cannot fathom the goodness of being in God's presence when we're there. Like, we cannot, we can't wrap our brains around it, how awesome it's going to be. And I think because we can't wrap our brains around it, because we've never experienced the goodness of that, that kind of makes us kind of get nervous, about having to spend eternity away from the things that we know that we have experienced here on Earth that did make us feel good, like our pets, like playing baseball or football or basketball. Is there going to be football in heaven? If not, I don't want to be there. I mean, <laughs> stupid stuff, just stupid stuff, you know. But it's 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 stuff we have experienced, part of the creation. But like Romans 1 says, we have this tendency to worship the creation rather than the creator. The creator is far better than the creation. And so that's something you can really hang on to, though. You know, as good as your best day was, whatever your best day was, it's not even going to compare. Not even close. Nowhere close. Nowhere close to like a regular day in the presence of God and my words are not doing it justice. So I apologize for that.
0: No, man, that's beautiful. And, um, let me help if I can, let me see if I can shed a little bit more light on this, because like if you read Isaiah sixty-five seventeen at face value and you don't put it into context, or if you don't even do some literary breakdown of like who the subject of the sentences are and who the subject of the passages are and stuff like that, you'll get lost because who is it? that is creating the new heavens and the earth? Who is it that is the source of what's being talked about? Who is the one that's doing the forgetting? It's not us. It's God. God is choosing to forget our sins. He is choosing to not hold them against us anymore. As far as from the east to the west, um, he is forgiving them. He's putting them into the sea of, of forgetfulness. In that moment, he's creating a new heaven and a new earth. The former won't be remembered nor come into mind. Why does he create a new heaven and a new earth? Couldn't Jesus just do what he's doing on the old heaven and the new earth? Why the complete renovations of the heavens, space, and earth proper? Because these things have been damaged by the fall. They are a visual reminder of sin and destruction. And Satan, and Satan's fall. And God is saying, it's over. King Jesus is here. I am dwelling with my people. There is no sun. I am the light. I dry every tear. There's no more mourning. Well, why would there be mourning? Like, when we see Jesus, he's going to wipe away tears from our eyes. Why would we be crying in the presence of God? That's going to be the most beautiful thing in the world. We'll be face to face with love. And we're not going to be crying because... You know, it's it's like, out of happiness, you know why we're going to be crying? Because when we see the one who is loved, when we see the nail scars in his hands, we are going to be crying at our unholiness. Literally. As our works are being burnt up, and and we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. But when we make it past that, God wipes away the tears and says, Okay, I don't remember that anymore. I don't remember that. It's done. Don't don't see me now as as the one who did all these things and let me down. I don't see you that way anymore. You have a new body. I don't even remember what you used to look like. It's God that's doing the forgetting, not us. The Bible says in this path, in this chapter that we're rejoicing, we're praising, we're worshiping. Worship only comes from a point of remembrance, right? Worship comes from remembering the good things of God. We're commanded to remember the the works of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord and all these things. That's what spurs our worship on. So it's we're not the the passage. We're not the subject of this. God is. God is choosing to forget, to not hold against us. He's choosing to make a new heaven and an earth because this old heaven and earth testifies to his wrath and the new one will be a testimony to his forgiveness and his life. So you'll you'll remember You'll remember. It's just that you'll be freed from the guilt because you will see that the redemption of Christ is complete in that moment when you make it, when you finish your race. So don't not finish the race. Finish strong so you can get there, so that that can be settled. Amen? Yeah, brother. All right. Where are we at here? Um, Dear BDK, thank you for... W- For doing what is needed. The news was talking about chipping people recently and how we already do it to dogs. And so why not humans? However, my manager said off her own back the other day that babies should be chipped for many reasons. This got me thinking, when the mark does come in, surely they would do it from birth. So does that mean that no one born from then on will stand a chance to be saved if a baby can't choose to say no to the mark? Can it? Thank you again. So basically you're wanting to know like if you're in a hospital and the mark of the beast is going on and you're delivering your baby, like the the baby comes out and they'll chip it against your will. They'll chip the baby against its will. and Can you get saved and all of this other stuff? Well, to answer it, let's look directly at what the passage says. Revelations 13, 15 through 17. And he... That's the false prophet, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bonds, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. It's not the Antichrist that's giving out this mark. It's the false prophet. Because this mark is a religious mark. It's receiving a mark for worshiping the image of the beast. It's not even worshiping the Antichrist. It's worshiping the image of the beast. And the image of the beast is saying, receive this mark. So it's an act of worship. And that word, receive the mark, it's like you're receiving a gift or you're receiving salvation. It's a volitional act of will. It's pledging our allegiance to the false religious system of Satan. No one is being forced to take the mark. It's like a driver's license, right? You can't drive without one but you don't have the right to have one, it's a privilege granted by the state for complying with their rules. It's not like they're even going to let you into the hospital to have the baby if you don't have the mark. So the baby's not going to get forced to take the mark. But let's say that, you know, like an unsafe person who has the mark gives birth and then that baby takes, The mark is forced upon them. I don't believe that's part of it. I believe that they're only going to give this mark to people that willingly receive it. Because Satan isn't doing it to chip people. He's doing it to receive worship. He's trying to fulfill that I am. I believe he's actually at this point inhabiting the image of the beast. He's what's making it speak and live, Satan himself. Because people are worshiping the image. And that's what Satan has always desired. He does not. He's, he's selfish. He's not going to share that worship. He wants people to willingly worship him. But if you were chipping, even little babies, right? The chipping is only happening three and a half years into the tribulation, right? There's only three and a half years from the mark time the mark is given till when Jesus comes back. If I'm reading my Bible correctly, maybe a few days later than that, but. There's an age of accountability too, like a three and a half year old to a four year old isn't maliciously choosing in their own will to worship Satan or worship the image or receive the mark willingly, so I don't know that if God would you know hold a four year old accountable to something that they don't even have the mental assent because worship is literally a mental volitional choice of will to ascribe allegiance or um worship to something now i could be wrong because the the scripture is kind of silent also on this matter i'm kind of doing some conjecture here it's going to be between god and the situation ultimately all we can do is prepare for it. i believe we'll be on the earth during this time So if you're having a child, you should have provisions so that they can't come and mark your child or you should have provisions where you can, you know, hide yourself. Or if you're in a concentration camp, they'll probably kill you before you're able to have a child because you, you'll be an enemy of the state. So it's like, if you're not receiving it, they're hunting you down and they're killing you. They're not chipping you against your will because it's kind of like a country club thing. It's like, you're a subclass citizen. You don't believe in the new world order. You don't believe in this new golden age, Don. Screw you, is what they're basically saying. Like, you're not even worthy to take this mark. It's like a status symbol almost. And, like, you're not worthy to take this. You're not worthy to pledge allegiance. You're a dog. We're killing you. We're doing, as a matter of fact, and I'll get into this in episode 100, it's the Christian people, it's these this world's religious system they're not going to force you to take this mark. They want you dead. And they think that by killing you, they're doing Jesus a service, Yahweh a service. So they would rather kill you than force you to take a mark. This is how I read the whole Bible prophecy scenario. Brother Phil.
1: I think that sounds really well said, man.
0: All right. Um, your question. Are there any writings that are reliable that explain where Paul was during his 17 years, the way I read Galatians 1, before his ministry started out?
1: So, when you're saying reliable, um, I guess that's kind of a subjective term, you know. If you believe somebody like Chuck Swindoll is reliable, then, you know, I'm sure he's, he's got a commentary on you know on acts or something like that, you'll read, or if you think you know the new international commentary on the New Testament is reliable, then you know, yeah they the the early Christians do not comment on that timetable, so you're not gonna find that um in sorry in in the anti Nicene christians they don't they don't make that comment or they they don't comment on that so i can't help you there um so if you're just going by the bible where was paul during the i'm just gonna say silent years because 17 years i you know i appreciate you saying it's the way you read it because we don't really know how many years um he spent between that road to Damascus experience and, um, like his, his first missionary journey, you know, basically we, we don't know. There are people that are making good educated guesses, but we just don't know. But we know he spent a while in Arabia and then he came back to Damascus and then he went to Jerusalem. For A couple of weeks um, That's all in Galatians 1 You see how many years he was there All that kind of stuff And then The next time we see Paul After Jerusalem So Arabia, Damascus, Jerusalem The next time we see him He's in Tarsus again So he evidently went back home We don't know how many years He was back home um, But he went back home and here's something I would just say, like, like what's our ministry, though, uh, before his ministry started out? Like, where was Paul before his ministry started out? It's interesting, like, how we think about ministry. Um, was Paul doing ministry while he was in Arabia? Was Paul doing ministry while he was... In Damascus and Jerusalem and Tarsus. Well, you know, right after his conversion, he was telling people about Jesus, but then we don't see him doing a lot of stuff. What was he doing? Well, if you read like in first Samuel chapter three, when Samuel gets his call from God, um, it says, and then Samuel began to minister to the Lord. I think it's at Shiloh. But he, he began to minister to the Lord. So like the first calling that we have as ministers, the first calling is to minister to God. To serve God, to attend to God. That That's the first calling on our lives. And so Paul had to relearn that whole thing to really minister to the Lord because he was doing a lot of active church stuff you could say or synagogue stuff he was incredibly religious but his heart was way off and we know his heart was way off because he was actually fighting against god that's that's what god says that's what jesus says paul thought he was right in line with god as a minister as part of you know the upper echelon of the jews And yet, he was not a minister to the Lord. And so, perhaps God had him relearning this essential part, this essential foundation of ministry. And I think sometimes, you know, um, we get caught up in wanting to be stars, like you've talked about in your uh, interview with um, Dissident Prophet. And, like, we have to have this certain kind of ministry, and we miss out on, like, we have to have a flashy kind of ministry, but we miss out on the most important ministry that drives everything else in our life, and that's ministering to the Lord. Because Paul spent those, you know, maybe that decade and a half or more relearning true ministry— foundational ministry, serving God, serving Jesus, that's what allowed him to be so effective for the rest of his life.
0: Amen. And we might not know everything that happened, but I can tell you something that did happen. When Paul was Saul, and he was full of this religious zeal to see people observe the ways of God as he understood them, because he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as he said. He looked at these people who were lost, these Christians, as heretics, as pagans, who deserved to be punished, who deserved the wrath of God, who deserved everything they got because they were lost. And so he hunted them down. He he held the coats of people who stoned them. He killed them, and he threw them in jail. But when he comes back is Paul of Tarsus. And he goes into cities and towns, and he sees people giving over to pagan idolatry and pagan witchcraft and doing the same things that he thought the Christians once did. He didn't think that they deserved God's wrath. He didn't get angry. He didn't want to kill them. The Bible says that it, he was moved with compassion. He, he, he was tore up inside. He was, he, it stirred him. He didn't care if he caused a riot and he got stoned, and he did once and died. I believe God raised him back up. He was like, I will give my blood to serve these people so that they see Christ. He viewed people not as heretics that deserved God's wrath, but he saw people as God saw people in need of a Savior. He left and came back completely different. I don't know what he did but I can tell you who he was spending time with in all those places because he spent time with Jesus and the Holy spirit. He spent time in prayer and fasting because those are the things that give you the heart of God towards people. He spent time becoming who God called him to be. And we know that because we see the marks of servanthood. He probably spent a lot of time serving the apostles, maybe or pastors or you know cleaning up stalls or whatever he yeah he got ground level probably god probably put him into a very low place because he was a very high-minded person we don't know what happened but we know he had a heart transplant when he came back and that only comes through serious devotion and seeking after god it only comes after god really just you know you possessing the things of the spirit and walking after the spirit not the lust of the flesh it comes with feeding the spirit and starving the flesh, so I know that happened for certain. Hmm. All right, now we're gonna get into it, people. Now we're gonna do <laughs> some stuff. Now the show's gonna get real. Um,
1: at one o five in the morning or uh, 07
0: Yep. Now it's gonna get real. All right. <laughs> okay. It seems that the Mandela effect is picking up speed. Could you do a Q&A or a show on this, please? I get asked this um, from time to time about this Mandela effect. And if you don't know what it is, um, basically it's this theory that uh, the CERN and the Large Hadron Collider began experiments. Uh, they split reality or they glitched reality somehow. And that we either got moved over into the next alternate you or next alternate earth, like our earth somehow got destroyed, and our earth became a new earth. So like we took over the spot of the parallel earth, or there was some sort of time travel that happened where people went back in time and started changing things. And we realize it because we we as humanity share some sort of common experience. And so, like, we remember things a certain way, like, Luke, I am your father, or um, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Or we remember things like, hmm, didn't the Bible used to say that we don't put wine into old wineskins? How come the Bible is saying now we put it into bottles? And, like, people read the King James Version of the Bible, and they're like, wait a minute, this is saying something completely different than what we remember it saying. And all these people are quoting it one way. How come it looks like it changed? Uh, There are even some people now that are saying that planes are stopping in dead air because there's glitches in reality from the Mandela effect. So it's taken on this whole life of its own. So that's basically what the Mandela effect is. Now I'm not going to try to go into the realm of conspiracy here. I'm going to not going to try to get snarky like I did with the September 23rd thing. Um, I'm not going to try to do that. I'm going to try to just be very matter of fact about what I believe. And it's kind of crazy because, like, I remember when I first heard about this Mandela Effect. This was a few years ago, and Justin actually called me up, and he was he wanted to do a show on the Fourth Watch on it. He's like, "Look at this video that I saw on YouTube that these people are saying that you know CERN caused this rift and this glitch in reality, and people time traveled and changed things in the Bible." We, should, we need to do a show on this. We need to get out in front of it. And I was like, man, I don't think people are really going to fall for that, dude. Like, I want to give people more credit in this situation. I don't believe that this is going to gain any real traction. Because, come on, man, how crazy would we have to be to believe that if time travel was possible, I would go back and change more things than just a Star Wars reference or a utensil reference in the Bible. I would change the major stuff if I was Satan. I would also be like, hey, if if, if God, if this was a possibility, if this was part of Satan's plan, God warns us about some pretty minuscule things in prophecy, like some real mundane things. Like, this would be, like, one of the big ones that I'm sure God would be like, hey, you got to be careful here because someone's going to go back and change time. Like, that would happen. Um... I also was like, and and then God settled his word forever in heaven. He protected it. This isn't going to gain that much traction, right? It did. And now we're going to have to discuss it, apparently. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try not to go conspiracy. I'm going to go logically, right? Because people are saying the Mandela effect is a scientific phenomenon. It's something that CERN caused. It's a scientific thing that CERN did. So in any scientific theory, we should be able to prove something by a hypothesis, right? So if CERN's Large Hadron Collider conducted its first research experiment and the earliest time window that it did so would be from March 2010 to early 2013, that's the first round of testings. That's a fact that's documented. So any time travel at the very earliest, any glitching of reality at the very earliest would have had to happen during that window, that possible opportunity. So, and not beforehand. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind. The second thing is if there's a competing theory, we also have to weigh that. And there's a, uh, there's another theory of what could be causing this Mandela effect. And that's that it's just one of a memory thing. Basically, Like the King James version of the Bible didn't really change. It always said that stuff. We just remember it because lots of people are quoting it wrong. We've heard lots of people quote it wrong. We think it should say so-and-so. Then we open up our Bibles and we're like, wait a minute, it says bottles and not wineskins. And we need to ask ourselves, in theory, which one is more possible. So let's start with one scientific fact right off the bat, one statistical fact. The statistical fact is only roughly thirty percent of Christians read the Bible anymore. And most of them do not read King James. They read multiple other translations, modern translations. So not only do only 30% of the of Christians read their Bible with any regularity, most of them aren't reading the King James, have no clue what the King James said or has said. What in reality is happening is uh we hear what preachers are quoting. And when you hear a preacher, like an audio sermon, nine times out of ten, he's not telling you which translation of the Bible he's quoting from. So we hear these things, they become part of our collective memory. So that's one thing. Um, It would make sense, too, that if this is a recent statistic, right, that we wouldn't see this in earlier generations, because earlier generations read their Bible. Like, none of them were like, hey, wait a minute, why is it saying this? Why is it saying that? It's only this generation that's having this problem because we don't read the Bible. So that could be one possible solution. Now, let me take away some things and let me show you why the Mandela effect cannot be possible, why the Bible, like the bottle thing didn't happen or the lion and the lamb thing didn't happen, because these are statistically provable, too. And how can I prove that? Well, I'm a King James guy. I read King James Version Bible. I'm not like what you would consider a King James only guy. But at one point, I definitely was. And at one point, I was into apologetics. And at one point, I was into King James only apologetics. So like back in the 90s, we were talking about this bottle issue. Because we knew back in the 90s that it said bottle, not wineskin. And people would accuse us of not having a properly translated Bible because the translators didn't use the right choice when they put in bottle. It should say wineskin. And then so like major scholars who have written books on this subject, you can go to TexasReceptus.com. Like these things are documented, documented pre the CERN fire update of the Large Hadron Collider. Where they're talking about that it says bottle, you can verifiably, scientifically prove that it always said bottle, that it said bottle before the Large Hadron Collider was a gleam, uh, was a glimmer in some scientist's eye. That it that it always said bottle. We were defending it not because of the Mandela effect. We were defending it as a translation choice from a King James Only standpoint. Most of these translation choices. That most of these translation problems that we have, that we say are the Mandela effect, have been things that King James only people have been defending since like the, 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 the 90s, the 80s. Like it's all on record. Another one would be the lion and the lamb thing. Like, wait a minute, the lion's, le- it's a wolf and a leopard and it's, and oh my goodness, they it changed it. It's supposed to be a lion and a lamb. Well, you can verify this too. David Reagan, who is a prophecy teacher, has a ministry called Lamb and Lion Ministries, and he documents this. You can go online and see his letters. This was in a letter written before March 2010, the, the March 2010 Large Hadron Collider experiment, pre, okay, pre-documented. You can go online and look at it. The logo of Lion, and this is a quote: "Quote the logo of the Lion and Lamb Ministry." displays the lamb and the lion living peaceably together. Many people believe that this symbolism comes from a verse in the Bible that says the lamb and the lion will lie down together during the millennium, but that is not true. First of all, there is no such verse. Yes, you heard me correctly. There is no such verse. Almost every week, in fact, almost every day I receive an email message, a letter, a telephone call, an inquiry from someone saying, I know that someplace in the Bible it says the lion will lay down with the lamb, but I can't find it. I've searched and I've searched and I know that it must be there. I know it is there because after all, that is the name of your ministry, lion and lamb. It's in your logo. So where is it? Now, the verse that people are looking for is this one. It's Isaiah 116 through 7. The wolf will lay down with the lamb and the leopard with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Also, the cow and the bear will graze and the lion will eat straw like ox. When I founded Lamb and Lion Ministries back in 1980, I sought a name that was related to the ministry's purpose, which was teaching a Bible prophecy in the proclamation of the soon return of Jesus. Dude, that's documented proof that this was, this guy knew about this in the 80s. In the 80s, it said exactly what you say has been changed by the Mandela Fact in 2010 at the very earliest. So these these things do not hold water whatsoever. They've always been there. It's just we don't read our Bibles and we don't read the King James anymore. And then there's like one huge, huge problem with this. If God can't protect his word from being changed, then what do we base right and wrong on? When people say, well, well it sucks to be you. You should have hid God's word in your heart. Really? So I need to base what I believe the truth of God is from what's in my heart. When the Bible says that my heart can't be trusted, it's deceitfully wicked above all things. No, I think that if God would would go through so much work, I mean, 66 books, all these different authors, 4,000, 6,000 years of human history. He works meticulously to to to, to 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 put the Bible together to preserve his word that, hey, man. He's going to have it on lockdown. He's going to leave it for us as a standard of righteousness. But if we believe that the Bible can be changed, then all kinds of shenanigans can happen. I feel at liberty to kind of share this because it's kind of like an update on a previous podcast, right? We had a listener, remember Phil, when we had a listener that wrote in, she was an admin for an online ministry, right? And her, uh, the person that was doing this was a transgendered pastor was coming out as transgendered, And this person was like, do I need to leave the admin? Do I need to walk away? Do I need to do this? And since I'm not sharing this person's name, I feel more at liberty to share this. As an update to our listeners, she wrote back and gave me a status update of what was going on, right? And I want to read to you what, what she said. Update on this transgender pastor. She came out to the fellowship she started. Many of the members started, stated their disagreement with her and her fiancé and were removed. Both have sent messages from numerous people who are concerned with their perception that the Bible isn't 100% the inspired word of God anymore.
1: Imagine that.
0: And it is, to them, part of the Mandela effect. Right. So I wrote back. Please explain more about this Medella effect comment. Are people excusing this sinful behavior because they think the Bible may have changed? Writes back, this is exactly what they believe. They don't believe or view the Bible now is the original. To them, it has been changed. That's, that's a pretty damning proof in the pudding to me. So I think it's more scientifically provable that all of these mistakes that you're finding in the King James Version Bible that you say are being changed post-March 2010, we knew about back in 1980 and can document. We knew about it even earlier than that. So the Bible, the King James Bible, has always said what it says. We just need to read it. So... And we need to trust that God, if he's going to go through all this work to meticulously put together the canon of scripture, is probably powerful enough to preserve it. that That's my take on the Mandela effect. Like it or hate it.
1: Yeah, man. Um, the only things I would add to that is uh, in the anti-Nicene writings, you have both uh wine bottles and uh, wine skins referenced multiple times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do without what you want, you know, for the people who believe in the Mandela effect, like if they went back and changed everything or whatever, they, <laughs> they didn't cover their bases, you know, like it was kind of sloppy because so you got both going on throughout the anti-Nicene writings So, I mean, you just got different manuscript trans, uh, sorry, different manuscript traditions, basically, you know, some are saying the bottles thing and some are saying the wineskins thing. It's, it's really not a big deal. It's conveying the same point. So that's all I have to say.
0: No, it's, it's spot on because people are like, well, wineskins makes more sense. Obviously it would be wineskins. It fits with the visual image. And then the people who are like the King James Virgin Bible isn't translated properly, the Mendel Effect people are like, oh, that bottle, that never existed back in the King James language. They would never call them Bibles or bottles back then. The King James translators would have never used Bibles or bottles. And it's like, no. Like the early church fathers were calling on bottles and wine skins. Exactly what you're saying. It's an exactly an apologetic argument that, that King James only people use to defend that translation choice, that it is a valid translation choice. So yeah. Yeah. Trust God's word. I guess that's what we have to say, right? Trust God's word. He settled it forever in heaven. As a matter of fact, Who is the Word of God? It's Jesus. Do you Mm -hmm. think that anything that we can create, CERN or otherwise, can glitch Jesus? Right. If we can glitch Jesus, we got bigger problems than anything we're discussing on this podcast tonight. I guarantee it. And since we're discussing bigger problems on the podcast tonight, (laughs) (laughs)
1: let's
0: move on to this next question. This is your question. Hey. And they asked, they wrote you and asked, they wrote you and asked. So
1: they didn't write me.
0: I thought it was your email. They wrote, it wasn't my oh. email.
1: <laughs> oh, that's right. My bad. I forgot.
0: <laughs> when they write my email, I tell them that I'm not discussing this on my podcast. So
1: <laughs> my bad,
0: no, it's all good because if we're going to open up the Mandela can of worms. We might as well hit this one too tonight. And then this will be the last time we discuss it on the podcast.
1: I bet this person had tried to write you over oh, and I'm over. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Wasn't getting a response. So like, let me try this this gullible guy, Phil. He'll, he'll respond.
0: Just like the same dude who keeps posting on our YouTube channel in the comments every single time, whether we're talking flat earth or not. The earth is flat. Do I need to email you and write you that the earth is flat? Like every time he keeps hijacking it. Anyways, so now you know what we're going to talk about. Here's the question. I would like to know your thoughts on God's creation. Is the earth flat or a sphere? I don't need to follow that up or rephrase that.
1: Yeah. So this is like the only time I'm going to talk about this subject. BDK, obviously, if you want to talk about it, it's your show. You can do whatever, whatever you want, but I'm done after this. All right. So here we go. Um, Rob Skiba and Doug Hamp, uh, I, I, I really like these guys. I really do. Um, I, I own a copy of Babylon Rising. I own a copy of Corrupting the Image. I've read both of them and I think they're really good books. Uh, I've watched a ton of their videos, especially from several years ago. Individually, I listened to a lot of their things that they did on podcasts, um, interviews that they did um, on uh, um, Gary Stearman's show back in the day, things they did with Canary Cry. Like, man, I was like really into it. And then they started doing this YouTube thing together called quest for truth and man i was i was just absorbing this stuff uh it was was great quest for truth the series that they did together was was really good especially when they started going to the book of revelation um just learning a whole lot from both of them some really great stuff to say and after 20 something episodes they stopped and after like a year or two, they came back and did one more episode together and they stopped again. And it it seems that the main point of contention is whether the earth is flat or a sphere. That's, the main problem between these two guys. And I could be wrong about that, but that's what it seems like. And, you know, um, it's really sad. It's really sad to me because uh, I think these guys are, are great biblical minds and have contributed so much to the kingdom. I think they're getting distracted, though, Personally, by something that's minor in uh, in comparison to the major things that should not are the major things that should divide us uh, that that we we should die on hills that we should die on. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think um, they're getting divided by something that's a, a smaller hill. Like I'll give you, for instance, like. Was the Earth created in literal six days um, and therefore is the Earth only six thousand years old, or are the six days of creation perhaps not literal six days, and is the Earth maybe not literally six thousand years old? you know well, is that an important thing to think about and discuss? And have your biblical views on? Sure. Sure, it is. But would not believing in a literal six days of creation disqualify someone from being a follower of Jesus? Well, of course not, right? Of course not. The early Christians, I mean, as far as I can tell, they all believed in like literal. At least it's the overwhelming view that they they believed in a literal six days of creation, and that the earth is for for us now. It would be six thousand years old, basically, and that Jesus is basically going to come back very very soon because of that. Like that that's that's the way they thought. But from what I've read, no one ever got disfellowshipped because they didn't believe in. Uh, literal six-day creation. People would get disfellowshipped because they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. People would, you know, be disfellowshipped because they were unrepentant about committing adultery. People would be denied fellowship or disfellowshipped because of these serious, serious either lifestyle errors and being unrepentant about that or Denying Jesus Christ, you know, like being a Gnostic or something like that. Not these more minor areas of Scripture that's that are important, but they're minor. And, uh, you know, the, the, these are like distractions that I think Satan uses. And you see this like with magicians. You know, magicians will... They have a trick. And so like what they have in their right hand is the important thing. So what do they do? They get you to look at the left hand to try to distract you from what is really going on in the right hand. It's 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 a tool of the devil to get us distracted and like right in the middle of this revelation Bible study, here comes this whole flat earth issue. And while that may be a fine and important issue to think about, which is more important? The book of Revelation and people understanding the book of Revelation or flat Earth or spherical earth. People understanding that the earth is a sphere and being able to prove that from science. Which is more important? You know, so like I, I think we really need to, I mean we, we see this stuff going on in politics too. I'm sorry for rambling, man. But like you and Christians we, we see this. We understand this. You know, Hillary Clinton's getting you know, about to be like indicted for all of those you know, thousands of emails. And then what does the media do? They go, don't look at that. Look at Russia. Look at Russia. Look at Russia. And then you have this whole pedo gate stuff break out. And then what does the media do? They say, don't look at that. Look at Russia. Look at Russia. And maybe Russia's done some crazy stuff. You know, maybe they have, I don't know, but it takes our focus off of these really critical issues that we should be dealing with. And we totally lose our focus over major things by focusing on minor things. And, you know, if we can see that so clearly in the world, how are we missing it here in the church? You know, and so I, Flat Earth, honestly, I could not care less whether the Earth is flat or a sphere. I think the Earth is pretty dynamic. I think the Earth is probably way more dynamic than than I will ever know as long as I'm alive. It, it's probably pretty weird. And yeah, NASA, they're a bunch of crooks. But... That's probably not as important as something like hollow earth, to to be honest. If you look at the scripture, and even though the early Christians talk, you know, you could make a case from the early Christians about them believing that the earth is flat. You can make that case. They also believe that the earth is hollow. Well, which is more important? You know, at least you're talking about like Hades and stuff like that, that there's like an inner realm. Which do you think has more bearing on our souls, on people's souls, the Earth being flat or the stuff inside the Earth? Well, if you if you really want to look at it, which is minor, which is major? The major issue is hollow Earth. You know that's where that's where souls are. Think about the things. uh, Think about the destination of rebellious angels. Think about the things that come out of the abyss in Scripture. Think about the things that come out of the bottomless pit in Scripture. You know, what's going on inside the earth is far more important, according to Scripture, than the shape of the earth. And yet, you know, we're getting like all divided as Christians over a minor issue. But even more important, Then the hollow earth, according to God, far, far more important than whether the earth is hollow or not, is reconciliation. If you've ever said the Lord's Prayer, then you said something really dangerous. You know, Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our what? Our trespasses as we do what? Forgive those who trespass against us. That little word as has humongous meanings. You just ask God to forgive you the way that you forgive other people. And then right after the Lord's prayer is done, what's the very next thing Jesus says? He says he doesn't talk about keeping God's name hallowed. He doesn't talk about our daily bread. He doesn't even talk about his kingdom. He says, for if you forgive other people their sins, your heavenly father will forgive your sins. But if you don't forgive other people their sins, your heavenly father won't forgive your sins. He goes right to that. Think about Matthew 5. He says, you know, Though, if you harbor hatred in your heart toward a brother, you've you've murdered them. You've committed murder in your heart. You know, like... Reconciliation is huge and and after our ministry to the Lord, what is our next primary ministry, our next most important ministry? Every single believer gets this ministry. it's called the ministry of reconciliation. you know Paul talks about that in second corinthians second uh, corinthians five right he says, you know if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, the new is come. So if you're in Christ, you're this new ministry minister of reconciliation, not counting people's sins against them. Like, that's your primary ministry. It's not to flat earth, and it's not to spherical earth. Your ministry is to reconciliation. And so, Lord, I love you, Doug Hamp. I love you, Rob Skiba, and I'm praying that you two will reconcile, and you will take these two These issues that you've got over the shape of the earth and, you know, keep them, study them. You know, that's fine. Hold those views. But please, guys, forgive each other and love each other and put that as a back burner so that your ministry to the church can really flourish with the book of Revelation, because what y'all are doing was so important so important far more important than the shape of the earth it's far more important and even more important than that is you demonstrating to your brothers and sisters in christ how to truly be reconciled how to reconcile how to forgive how to love how to put brotherly love ahead of like minor areas of doctrine so i i beg you guys to please reconcile and do it for real and get back on track with your ministry of the study of revelation.
0: Amen. Um, In my notes, I literally wrote Phil Baker shrug. (laughs) If you don't get that, it's because sometimes like when we get into super controversial things, Phil Baker will just come on the show and be like "Eh, shrug. (laughs) 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 Um, but well, you know what? <sighs> Hearing this whole Rob Skiba, Doug Hamp thing, I'm with you. I, I've read the books that you've talked about. I particularly like Doug Hamp's book on the millennial kingdom is phenomenal. Like how he breaks that all down and how the millennial kingdom actually starts and the new heavens and the new earth are just like day one of the thousand year reign. Like that stuff is amazing. But like, They get into like all these Hebrew roots things now, they're all divided over the flat earth, and it seems some of that goes hand in hand. And then Christians are fighting about what day we have to worship on, and then we're fighting about this, we're fighting about that, and we're fighting about the other thing. And it's like, BDK, you need to address this on your podcast. And I'm like, No, I don't, because first of all, I'm not your pastor. I appreciate everyone who says that we're their church or they use it for Bible study. There's there's people out there that actually use this as a weekly Bible study like that flat. That's flattering and that's awesome. But like, I'm not your pastor. I'm not a pastor of a church anymore. I'm not an evangelist. I don't have to sit back and teach every single word of scripture. I'm a podcaster. This is a podcast. I get to talk about what I want. In my podcast, that's a medium. I'm not a church. I'm a podcast. I can talk about whatever I want to talk about on my podcast, and I can choose not to talk about things that are divisive and don't serve any good purpose. It's not like I don't have a viewpoint on whether the earth is spherical or is flat. It's just I'm not stupid enough to say it. If you want to be really honest, like I, I, I 100% know which side I'm on, Right? but I'm not stupid enough to plant my flag in the ground because people can't be responsible on the internet with the information. And that grieves me. That greatly grieves me, man, that we divide things. And then people are like, well, don't you understand? Like, if you don't understand the shape of the earth, then, then the shape of the earth proves that NASA lies. Well, all government agencies lie. I don't need to know the shape of the earth to know that truth. Well, if you don't understand the shape of the earth in the Bible, then, then, the, then you don't know that the Bible's the true word because otherwise it's a lie. I'm like, no, I don't need to know the shape of the earth to tell me that the Bible's the truth. If I wake up one day and I find out that it's flat or if it's round, it's not going to change my inerrancy of Scripture or what faith I place on it. Or they're like, don't you know this is all a Jesuit trick? The the shape of the earth proves that the Jesuits own everything and have everything on lockdown and are behind it all and are deceptive. I don't need the shape of the earth to tell me that either. I figured that out a long time ago. Like nothing is, is, is going to change how I view the importance of my faith or the things that are important for me to talk about. I I wish we didn't live in a world where we're so divided over what dietary laws or what we can eat or what we can't eat or whether we're circumcised or not or whether you want to worship on Saturday or if Wednesday or if Sunday or is it really has it really gotten to this point? Seriously? Aren't there better things that we could be pursuing in our life or or spurring each other on to? Why don't you talk about this on your podcast? Because I don't care. You want to know what it's like for BDK? For the last two years, BDK is trying to remember a promise that he made to God when he was 19 years old. And every year that I get older, I remember standing in a Pentecostal church promising God that if he filled me with the Holy Spirit and gave me what these people had, that I would serve him harder than I served the devil. And I've been woefully short of that promise. And two weeks ago I'm sitting there talking with Andy from in a Prophet. We're talking about Alistair Crowley. And he's like, This guy spent six months, sometimes six years, performing a, a spell. And he said that if he could change the mind of the youth, he could influence all the generations. And I look back at what Crawley did and and the effect that he had not only on the world and the hippie movement and the Beatles and David Bowie, but what the effect he had in the church. And I was mad and I prayed. I felt like a like an ant dude. Because here was a guy that was willing to sell out to Satan. To see signs and wonders and miracles and change a generation. Do you think he cared about what shape the earth was? No, man. He sold out. And he was a weapon in the hands of Satan. He gave Satan his undivided attention. And he shaped the world. We Christians can't even agree on things that that that. We can see. We can't even agree on the fact that CERN can't glitch Jesus. We can't even agree on what we should call him. And yet we wonder why Satan is running this world. Because they're all on the same page. We're not. I wish I had 10% of the conviction that Aleister Crowley did because I don't know about you but when I pray for people on the, when I pray for people to be healed, I'm getting tired of not seeing them being healed that dude would do the most insane things for six years to achieve the power of Satan and most Christians won't even turn off the TV for six minutes to pray and you tell me. <laughs> What we could achieve. Because Satan is a counterfeit. He's a fallen angel. He might be the God of this world, but my God is God. And the Holy Spirit, the last time I checked, has all the power. And the earth is the footstool of God. And he's like, where's the house that you will build for me? You're worried about what what version of the earth, what, what shape it is, and you forgot that my foot is on it. And if this earth is my home, then what I'm doing is my spirit is going to and fro and is looking for a resting place. Where is the temple that you will build for me? You think he cares? When his church won't say, here I am, O Lord, here am I, prepare in me a resting place. Long have I desired for you to dwell. We can't get on the same page. We can't even figure out what to call. Jesus and we wonder why demons don't flee from that name anymore because we don't believe it we won't pay the price Crowley would where are the good guys we're fighting over the silliest things dude and we're not pressing in this world is dying People are going to hell in a hollow earth. And the pain and the torment that they're feeling is not even. The pain and the torment that they're feeling in this hollow earth isn't even anything yet because the lake of fire hasn't even come. That's why I don't talk about this.
1: Man, you're doing great.
0: That's why we're not going to talk about this anymore. You want to talk about something? Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the Holy Ghost. Let's talk about about what matters. Let's talk about a world that's dying and going to hell. Because if this world is flat or if it's a globe or if it's a dome or if it's a flat earth encased in ice, we just read about it. God's going to remake it anyways. It's not even going to remember it anymore. God, let's populate a planet, a remade planet. We have the power to do that as ambassadors. We have the power to bring people to Christ. To point them towards Jesus. So that they can have their tears wiped away. Brother you read the next question, and I'm just going to take a second.
1: Yeah So BDK, Second Samuel chapter two through three. It sounds like David has a lot of wives or sexual partners and kids from each of them. We hear a lot about people getting wrapped up around the axle about masturbation or anything that implies infidelity usually indicated by the presence of another partner. Or perhaps masturbation is more problematic to God than multiple partners. Not to get off on a tangent. But even with the story of Bathsheba, the issue the Lord takes with seemingly, the issue the Lord, the issue the Lord, I'm reading this wrong. (laughs) Even with the story of Bathsheba, the issue the Lord takes issue with seemingly is the murder of Uriah. That's crazy, man. Is the murder of Uriah and stealing his wife, not the fact that it's a betrayal of David's existing wives. Also, David takes uh, Michal or Mikal uh, back from her while uh back from her first erst. <laughs> this is tough this is tough reading man david takes my uh, michael uh back from her husband after he fled presumably a while back it seems like they would have had a family and some sort of relationship during the time that david was away and not seeming to pine for her absence michael's uh Husband followed her, crying as far as he was allowed before, I think it was Abner, told him to bug off and let them take his wife as a political payola. I don't mean to be antagonistic, but I hear a lot of Old Testament loyalism in this and other related podcasts. And yet, there is not a clear explanation of what changed in the world of marriage and relationships that suddenly and drastically reformed it from what David was participating in, which seems to be much more of a fluid argument to what we now adhere to as a strict moral code between one man and one woman with no room for departures. Furthermore, David is held up as a role model, not a warning against womanizing, if anything, a warning against stealing from your neighbor. But I'm pretty confused by the whole deal. Is it po- or it's possible that some of his wives may have occurred in quote unquote series rather than quote in parallel? But at the very least, Ahinoam and Abigail were both married to him at the same time. While he was technically committed to Michal. Although it doesn't seem that he lost much sleep worrying about her before simply moving on. Not saying I blame him at all. Just feels like if I would written and said that I had something resembling David's dance card in my past. That I wouldn't be seen as as favorably from a standpoint of biblical compliance. For what it's worth... I don't have a David-esque romantic track record, but I'm beginning to wonder if maybe I should have. That is a question right there, BDK, and it's all yours.
0: So you said it was a pretty good question. I actually uh, had a hard time finding a concrete question in this.
1: No, I didn't say it was a good question. <laughs> you may not want want to put that in, in the uh, podcast, what I just said. Uh, <laughs> no,
0: I'm, I'm, this is part of it right here man we're recording live it's all good um it seems to be more of a statement or a theory or possibly even a rant um not you know, i don't think he's trying to be antagonistic but he's stating an opinion definitely and kind of pointing out some of the hypocrisies in the church and believe me man no one appreciates a good rant like me so like i ain't gonna fault you for it bro um or ma'am depending on who you are cuz i forgot i don't i try to keep these kind of anonymous so i don't have the email name in front of me um i'm assuming it's a guy though um here's the thing i think the question that you're trying to ask is uh why did david have multiple wives why do people in, like some of the patriarchs in the bible have multiple wives what changed like why are we more monogamous monogamistic in today's day and age, like, why are we romanticizing David as this great man of God when he had all these faults and he did bad things and his marriages cost him all kinds of chaos? And, like, what's up with it, basically? And you got some good points in that. I mean, like, I've wondered about that. People have wondered about that. But, like, here's the thing, man. Like, the reason that kings married a bunch of different wives wasn't so much like they were trying to follow a biblical thing. It's just that's what was politically expected of them. It was a cultural thing, but they didn't marry for love necessarily. They married to, they were arranged by families. They married for political alliances. They married for wealth. They married for peace treaties. Even some of the, you know, patriarchs of the faith had more than one wife. Some of the earlier patriarchs, Did it because the earth needed to be repopulated maybe or because of the wealth and there were certain alliances and tribes? Uh, Jacob got tricked um, and married another wife. The thing that you need to take away from it is that nine times out of ten, when someone had more than one wife, bad things usually happened and not a lot of good things came out of it. Solomon really, even though he's a guy that wrote a bunch of Bible There are some people that would say that Solomon was so corrupted by all these wively influences and all the esoteric things that followed into his marriage bed and some of the Solomon almost stuff that has morphed into Freemasonry. A lot of people wonder if Solomon was actually saved at the end of his life because of this.
1: I question it.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, and they make good points. I mean, like, having all these wives in your life isn't res- necessarily a recipe for God's blessing. Just because people did things in the Bible, like, because people lied, because people cheated, because people stealed, because people had more than one wife, because people did all these things, that doesn't mean that was God's best plan. I think God knew what he was saying, like, when he was saying, like, hey, if you're going to be a pastor, you should only have one wife. Because, like, you're supposed to have a help meet, Like, when he created Adam and Eve, he one wife. So, was it right that David was taking many wives for political reasons? The Bible doesn't either say yes or no on it. We do know that, like, he didn't escape. Like, he did bad things. He did that thing with Bathsheba. Like, the Bible doesn't romanticize it. Podcasters might. Ministers might. The Bible doesn't. Like you ask what you ask Absalom, if there were consequences to that that whole thing. Well, I think what what makes David a man after God's own heart is that when his sin was pointed out to him, he repented, and not only did he repent, but he took the the punishment like a man. Let's put it that way. We in Christianity today, man. We, we we expect that if God forgives us, that he should also release us from reaping what we sow. We, we think that if God forgives us, it should cancel out everything, and uh, it didn't. There was all kinds of messed up things that happened in David's life because of bad choices that he made. And yet you never see him complain about it or hold a grudge against God or say, it's unfair that you're punishing me for something that I did. No, he realized that the grace of God, even in forgiving him, even in still keeping the spirit with him in the midst of all the, like he sold what he reaped, but the spirit of God never departed from him. Like when he found out that he was the man, when the finger was pointed at him, he's like, forgive me and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Right? So like, that's what made him a man after God's own heart. That's what makes every child of God no different than David, because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. No one's romanticizing that. The sexual immoralities or whatever, it's the same as lying, man. Like we said before, the Bible is full of stories of people that either have done really stupid things or have had really stupid things done to them. But what the Bible's all about is that there is a God who could hold all of it against us, but still chooses to rescue and redeem us and has an excellent way for us. So, And if Solomon would have heeded the the stuff that he wrote in the book of Proverbs about finding that one virtuous woman and stuck to that. Man, if he would have heeded his own advice, it would have been awesome. But he's probably like every other preacher out there. Well, well, I shouldn't broadly say that because there are godly men of God that are preachers. But then there are also a group of preachers that have no problem preaching and telling you what you should be doing, but then you don't follow it yourself and you're hypocritical. So Solomon definitely did not heed his own advice under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And that should scare people a little bit, if I'm being honest, because the Holy Spirit can speak through you and inspire you to do things and use you in a mighty way. He even penned part of the Bible and was speaking all this like wisdom about finding that one woman and being faithful to her, and that's wisdom. And not to go after all these multiple women and the Holy Spirit's pouring all this knowledge through him and he's not heeding any of the advice. Like, there's a lesson in that. And that's not a romantic causation in this podcast of the whole situation. So, I'm glad you don't have David's dance card because you probably <coughs> saved yourself a bunch of problems, dude. And that's probably all I have to say on that. Brother Phil?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, and, and just to add a little bit, just because someone did something in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible endorses it. Amen. All right? Just say that again. Listen to it real close. Just because someone did something in the Bible does not mean the Bible endorses it. Just because David had a bunch of wives does not mean the Bible endorsed it. I mean, God told Solomon not to marry foreign women what did solomon do he married hundreds of foreign women you know god told him specifically like if you obey the the words in the book of the law i'm gonna bless you well he wasn't supposed to do what he did in the in the book of the law you have genesis that's part of the the torah and the Torah talks about one man and one woman being together forever. What did Solomon not do? He didn't do it. You know, there's a lot of, I mean, th- there's divorce happening in the Bible, you know. Uh, but just because that happens, is that is that what God wants? Is that what God endorses? Well, you know, divorce was pretty common in Jesus' day, and so... They come to him in Matthew 19, a bunch of religious Jewish religious leaders come up to him and they go, so is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, they're they're quoting the Old Testament. They're quoting the Torah because the Torah says later after Genesis uh, in in the Mosaic uh, in the Sinai covenant, you know. That it is legal and it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife. He's gonna to have to give her a certificate of divorce, but what does Jesus do? He goes, "Haven't you read how it was in the beginning? Because in the beginning, God created them male, male and female, right? In the beginning, for in this, in this, re- for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So they're no longer two, but one flesh. So what God has joined together, let no man separate. So, like, he's like, look guys, you guys are starting your orthodoxy too, too late. You need to go earlier, earlier. And you, then you'll see what God really has in mind for his design. And, um, you know, that's, that's Jesus' plan. And that's God's plan. For humanity, one man, one woman together forever, forever so um, we you you may not think it's natural um, to be um, to be in a committed monogamous monogamous relationship with a woman forever because maybe the society around you isn't living like that so it may not be common for you but there's a difference between common and normal normal is basically that's the way we are the world is created to be we have been created to be common is different than normal common is what actually is transpiring around you at a given situation in in a given location that that's that's what's common but what's common is oftentimes not normal. It's not the way things are supposed to be, the way we are created to be, the way God intended it to be. And Jesus actually shows you what a normal uh, relationship is supposed to be there in Matthew 19 as he appeals back to Genesis.
0: Amen. Amen. All right, final question of the evening. And then we'll put this Marathon Midnight Oil Session to bed, man, and hopefully go to bed ourselves. Hello, BDK and Phil Baker. I have a question about the letter of Jude. The letter describes a warning against sinful people who are mixed in the church fellowship, yet are not of the Holy Spirit. They are compared to fallen angels, even. Well, after much depression, I sought, in God's word, answers to my problems and found my problem is, that I have been living in sin, and I didn't fully take notice of it. And the book of Jude well describes the kind of person I have been living as. Does that mean that I'm not a real Christian and not actually saved? Does it mean that I do not have the Holy Ghost? Is the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost separate from having a saving knowledge of Christ? Thank you, Phil Baker. For your... Thank you and Phil Thank you and Phil Baker for your time and care to help others, brother. Phil. So,
1: yeah, yeah. So let's see. Is the Book of Jude talking about someone like you? You know, you've uh, you've been getting into sexual sin, right? And, uh, and you're feeling depression about this kind of stuff. Um. So, verse four of Jude says certain persons have crept in unnoticed unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and lord Jesus Christ most most certainly most certainly most likely um Judas talking about gnostics here okay in the 1st century um Gnostics like the Nicolaitans that Jesus would talk about. Um, like these are these are people who would say because matter is evil uh, and spirit is good, but matter is evil, so body is made up of matter. So because our souls are saved. Uh, We can do whatever we want to the body because it really doesn't matter. The body's going to be destroyed anyway. There's no like physical resurrection, anything like that. So we can abase our bodies. We can just we can do anything we want to our bodies. They would also say like they were the beginning. They were the originators of the uh, once saved, always saved idea. Like we're already going to heaven so we can do whatever we want. So that you can see with both of those, it's like turning grace of God into opportunity for licentiousness, into completely unlawful uh, behavior. And so um, because we're already saved, um, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. So um, I would ask you, is that how you think? Are you under that mindset? Are you agnostic? Or are you like of the real hyper grace mindset? Do you think that because Jesus saved you, you can do whatever you want? Is that really what you believe? Or do you have shame over doing these things? Do you have fear of the consequences of these actions? Like, Does it haunt you? Is there something haunting you about these actions? Because look, look, look as we keep going further. Uh, Jude continues to write about these people in verse 12. He says, these are men. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. They're like in they're like creeping in the church. Like they're they're there and they might even be teachers, but you don't realize we don't realize that they're like they're wolves in sheep's clothing, kind of. So they're hidden reefs in your love, love feasts when they feast with you. Without fear, without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the seas, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So let's focus on that phrase, without fear. Um, You said you're having depression over your sin. Well, someone without fear of consequences probably wouldn't be having depression over his sin. Yeah, I hope you can see right now I'm speaking as someone who's probab- who's kind of for you because um, I don't think you fit into this category. If you're, If you're in depression over these wicked acts, it's probably because you're ashamed of your sin. And you're afraid of consequences of your sin, but you you kind of feel trapped in your sin. So, verse 20 starts to give you some instruction for how to come out of your sin, um, or out of these patterns. He says, but you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to enter. uh, Sorry, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So there's some interesting phrases there. Building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Earlier, BDK was talking about, you know, what, what are you going to feed? Which aspect are you going to feed? You could think about it like, you know, they're, they're, like I've got two dogs. If I stopped, if I only fed one of them, that dog will get strong and the other one would get weaker. Well, are you going to feed fear and shame or are you going to feed faith and love, faith in God and love for God? You know, which dog are you going to feed? And Jude is saying, you know, you've been feeding the wrong dog. You've been feeding the wrong. Uh, the wrong parts, the wrong stuff inside you, and that's becoming stronger. Like the more you feed the things that make you depressed, the more depressed you'll get. But if you feed the spirit, the spirit's going to get stronger and so how are you going to do that? Well, are you going to live for God's pleasure or your pleasure? And so you got to start living for God's pleasure. And that's a tough thing to do because that requires, like, denying yourself. God desires you to be in communi- community with other believers. God desires repentance, you know. God desires... Um, you know, uh, restitution, if you've been hurting people. um, I would encourage you, I've referenced this book before, uh, but it's called God Help Me Stop. Uh, It's written, it's a book that's kind of, uh, it's not AA stuff, but it's kind of based off those 12 steps, but it's written by a woman who struggled with bulimia, um, it's about compulsions, really. It's it's about compulsions. And um, it's really good. Uh, it's a really good Christian-based book. And I would encourage you to do it because, you know, there's a lot of – if if you've been acting in this, like, addictive kind of mindset, these cycles of compulsion and shame and addiction and self-sabotage and – other people sabotage and you feel stuck in that. Um, I think this this would really help you out. God help me stop. I believe it's by the author is Claire W. Um, but you got to surrender your life to Jesus. And if you if you've already done that once, then brother, I'd encourage you to, you know go see go see a church leader that you trust or another Christian or just get on your knees right now and say, you know, father I've just I've blown it a lot and I, I I want you to do whatever it takes, do whatever it takes in my life to get me in line with you, get me in line with your truth, and to break me free of this. I'll do whatever it takes. Help me, God, you know, help me. I'll go wherever. And so and you got to be willing to do that. Um, Maybe it's going to see a prayer ministry uh, that will like pray over you and intercede for you. And they may show you some things that you don't realize in your past that have kind of brought you to this uh, or helped encourage you to get to this point where you're in this cycle of. Sabotage and maybe, you know, this areas of unrepentance from your childhood that you need to address Because maybe you've been being demonized in a sense. I don't know or maybe it's just sin that's led to demonization You know, I I, I don't know but I'd encourage you um, that Our God is way stronger than Satan and if you surrender your life to him And you really let him in, and you are really humble um, and willing to let God do his thing in you. Whatever it takes, God will be near to you. God is near to the brokenhearted. God is near to the brokenhearted. He lifts up all who are bowed down. Um, So do those things. Do those things.
0: Amen. That's a good answer to the first part of the question. And I have nothing to add to that. That's beautiful, man. Um, I'll just answer the second part, the bottom part of it. Um, I think you said, uh, does it mean that I don't have the Holy Ghost? Is the baptism of fire of the Holy Ghost separate from having a saving knowledge of Christ? And I'm glad that you took the first part of it. I'll hit the second part, and then we'll get the full answer, and then we'll close the show down for the evening. Um the saving knowledge of Christ. What happens when we have a saving knowledge of Christ? When we get saved, the Holy Spirit kind of calls us to repentance. It convicts us of sin. It causes Godly sorrow. It grants repentance. We talked about this before. But then the Holy Spirit, he baptizes us into Christ, or he saves us, or we become born again. Like the Bible says there's one baptism. That's a baptism Into Christ, so a lot of people will stop right there and say, Well, there's only one baptism then. Well, yeah, we're not being baptized into anyone other than Christ. We're only being baptized into Christ. We're not being baptized into Buddha, Muhammad, uh, Paul, Peter, John, any of these people, John the Baptist. And it's the Holy Spirit that places us into Christ. That salvation. But if we read Acts 1 4 through 5, we read this And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, You have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So in this instance, Jesus is baptizing or filling with the Holy Ghost. or So he's not baptizing into the Spirit because we already have the Spirit. The Spirit it, it has baptized us into Jesus. Now Jesus is saying, like these disciples that he's literally giving this command to, were already born again in John 20. They had this born-again experience. The Holy Spirit, he breathed on them. They received the Holy Ghost. They became born again like Adam received the breath of God. Like, in that moment, the Holy Spirit put them into Jesus. It was the day of the resurrection. that, And so, like, salvation, that was day one that salvation was, that mode of salvation was available. But Jesus was saying, look, I'm not baptizing you into the Holy Spirit. I'm baptizing you with the holy spirit the disciples were waiting for a mantle or an anointing or a, a an unction or an empowerment to come upon them to fill them so it's not like they were being placed in it was coming on and it was filling so that's kind of the difference i know it's a semantical thing but like we see it literally They had the spirit in John 20. Now they're going to be receiving the spirit. Why did they receive the spirit for a very specific reason? Acts one verse eight, but ye shall receive power after the Holy ghost has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses unto me in Jerusalem in Judea, Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It's an empowerment of boldness to be a living witness to Jesus. The gospel, it's to be his ambassador. And it's not the only time that a filling happened. These same disciples were told to stop preaching and stop healing in the name of Jesus, to stop being Jesus' ambassador, to stop being his witness. And how did they respond? Acts 4:29 29-31. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, grant unto thy servants with all boldness we may speak the word by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together— and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So it is a different thing, I believe. That um, that might be just be the Pentecostal and me talking. Um, I believe there is an endowment of power. That endowment of power, it, it allows us to be an authentic witness, to do the works that Jesus did to preach the message that Jesus did with boldness and with power. And as we yield ourselves, like Phil was saying, that awesome story about the dog, right? It's what you feed. As you yield yourself to the Spirit of God and you walk in the Spirit, you don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Because the one thing that keeps us from being an inauthentic witness is the things that we, you know, we, we talk about Jesus, but we don't live. Like a Christian, our sin gets in the way, but the Holy Spirit wants to sanctify us. It wants to empower us to make the proper choices. So when we build ourselves up in the most holy faith, when we feed the spirit, when we stir the gifts up in us that were laid on us, that were given to us by the laying on of hands, when we do these things, we're giving the spirit opportunity to empower us to live victoriously and to be that authentic witness. So if you have not received that endowment of power, then seek the Lord for it because he will give it to you. He, he commissioned you, he foreordained you to walk in good works, and it's his good, gracious pleasure to give you the empowerment to carry that mission out. But once that spirit has come upon you, like then it's up to you to enforce that rule of God in your life and to and to possess that which was given. So that's pretty much how I shake out on that. Anyways, it's been an awesome night. Uh, we've discussed many a things. This uh, one was all over the place, Phil. Yeah, like lots of different topics and lots of different questions, and that's cool. Keep them coming. Uh, we'll be answering more next month. Um, thank you for writing everything in. Phil, before we go one more time, how can people find you on the web? How can they read the blog? How can they get the book, man?
1: Yeah, so uh, check out my website. It's reclaimingthefaith.blogspot.com. I'll post on Monday. And, um, yeah, and uh, you can find my book, uh, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, on Amazon. I almost forgot the name of my book, man. That's crazy.
0: <laughs> it's been a long night and I think we're both spent, bro.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Amen. Well, everyone, we're gonna see everyone next week. Um we got a new bride boot camp coming up next Monday. And we'll be pressing on to episode hundred very soon. Um and you guys are awesome. Omega Frequency man, it's a family. I don't call you guys fans or listeners. You're the family, man. And you're a blessing. So let's just do that. Let's just rise up as the remnant in this prophetic hour. Let's be a blessing to those who need to see Jesus. Man, these days they're growing darker. We need every bit of light that we can get. We don't need to hide our lights under the basket or the bushels, that old song says, because we're afraid or we're timid. We don't need to fear the future because, like I always say, man, in the end, Yeshua wins. Grace and peace, everyone. Amen. Good night. Go with God. As this week's episode draws to a close, I want to share with you how you can become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Because if you desire freedom from this world's system of slavery to sin, there is hope. The gospel, or the good news of the kingdom, is that through repentance and the finished work of Christ that's revealed to us in his death, burial, and resurrection, there is redemption. There is restoration. There is a freedom offered to us by God to each and every person who would receive Christ as the king of this kingdom. It says this in Mark one fifteen. The time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand Repent ye And believe the gospel Today can be Your day In this moment right now You can choose to serve King Jesus And surrender your life To him You can switch your allegiances You can turn from the kingdom of darkness And begin to walk In the newness of life And that new life It can only come as the result of a supernatural work by the Holy Spirit. You see, salvation and repentance, it's a supernatural act. It's something that God gives to us, and it's only possible because of His grace. No one can repent unless God grants that repentance. John 6.44 tells us that no man can come unto Jesus except the Father which sent Jesus draws him by the holy spirit so it's the holy spirit that opens our eyes to our sinful condition he births godly sorrow within us over our sins and he allows us to see sin as god sees it and it's this insight that brings a supernatural desire to change our hearts to take that first step in a new direction away from the sin that's destroying us and into the liberty of that frees us. So if you feel the urging of the Holy Spirit to obey the call of the gospel and enter into the new covenant of a relationship with the one and only true God of the universe through the blood of Christ, then please accept the invitation that it gives to you in Isaiah 1:18, where he says, Come now, let us reason together says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, one way you could do this, one way you could reason with God, would be to prayerfully examine Exodus chapter 20 and read for yourself God's standard of perfection. Let them serve as an honest guide to the state of your life. Do a moral inventory of your life and then simply and honestly ask the Holy Spirit to show you the things in your life that don't line up with that standard. Ask Him to soften your heart so that you can begin to see your sin as God sees it. Ask Him to literally trouble your heart with godly sorrow over the times that you broke the laws of God. When that happens, soon you will realize that Romans 3.23 is true when it says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but if Romans 323 is true that also means that Romans 5 verse 8 must also be true and it says this but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Jesus died to save you from your sins and you can ask the holy spirit to give you the faith and the supernatural strength in this moment to call upon jesus to save you from your sins now just do that from the honesty of your own heart in your own words begin to call out to jesus to save you lay down your old life and put on his new life instead and realize that in Christ through his blood you can boldly approach the throne of grace and find the peace that passes all understanding knowing that the Father sees the sacrifice of his Son where your sins used to be. Now if I can help you further either by talking with you more about the covenant of salvation that was paid for by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus or if I can encourage you to take the next step in living a sold-out radical kingdom life for Him please visit OmegaFrequency.com and click on the navigational link entitled Salvation. From there you're going to find a button that says please help me take the next step. And if you use it I'll be able to communicate with you specifically about this matter. Well, as always, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to download this week's episode. It has been my honor to be able to spend time with you this week and discuss the things of Christ and his kingdom with you. Until next time, may Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with someone else. New episodes of Omega Frequency air on Mondays. And if you subscribe to us in iTunes, you'll never miss an episode. Our full podcast archives of previously aired shows, along with their original show notes, can be found online at omegafrequency.com. And we are also blessed... To be part of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, please visit fourthwatchradio.com today and check out a wide variety of episodes that cover paranormal and prophetic topics from a biblical perspective. Now, until next time, this is BDK reminding you that we don't need to fear the future because in the end, the sure wins.